0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Sig Sauer. My guest today is author, journalist, all around fascinating guy, Toby Harnden. He is a veteran of the British Royal Navy and the author of three books Bandit Country, about the IRA in Northern Ireland, Dead Men Risen about Afghanistan and his latest first casualty, which is about the first teams into Afghanistan following nine 11. It's an incredible read character driven story. We talk about his path into journalism. We talk about these three books on the podcast, had a great time talking to him. So without further ado, Toby Harden. Well, I've been so excited to, uh, Get to sit down with you and, and talk for a little bit. So thank you so much for for taking the time to do well, this. Me too.
1: Thank you. And wow, I like your I like your pile of books there.
0: That's right. That's right. I thought you might. And uh I figured we'll just hop hop right in. But um you know, this one, you know, when we first talked, I was like trying to please because I, you know, it's been a while since this yes, came out. Twenty years since uh, Bandit Country came out. It's been yeah, a while. Years, actually. It, you don't look old enough to have been able to write a book 20 years ago, by the way. Uh, but uh, so this came out and I was like, because this came out so long ago, I, was, I couldn't place the name. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, I know there's something about, you know, this name and th- this journalist. And I was trying to piece it all together. And then I didn't really, you know, place it until we talked. And then, you know, you said, hey, this one is kind of hard to get. And we're in the middle of a move. So I started just tearing through books, uh, through boxes of books to try to find it. And, uh, and I did. Right. So it's been a long time, but this is one of the, if, if someone wants to understand uh, the the IRA and, yeah. and what's going on in Northern Ireland, I mean, there's, uh, there are, are not many books that will, uh, will give you the, the depth and understanding that, uh, that this one will. So this is, this is amazing. And this was your first, was this that your was first, first
1: book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: It, well, before we get to all this first casualty and everything else you have, you have going on, um, I mean, you have a pretty interesting background. Like how did you, get to this stage? How did you get to Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, Oxford, 10 years in the Navy? I mean, like I said, you've done a ton out there. Um, So, so background wise, uh, when did you get this bug for, for journalism, for writing or for, uh, or for service or for investigating uh, military intelligence circles? Where did all that uh, start? So, you
1: you know, I'm fourth generation military. So my, my father was in the Navy. um, And, you know, I grew up, you know, with my grandfather, showing me his World War II medals, and so I think that was always kind of part of me. And so I joined the Navy. I mean, I I first got a place in the Navy when I was sixteen. Falklands War. Oh wow! Falklands War was going on, um, and I then decided I wanted to go to college as well. So I got, you know, I got a cadetship through the, through the Navy, and it just kind of went from there. But you know, I was I was in the Navy in that period where, I mean, the Gulf War happened, but I tried to get involved, but they managed to. Do it without me. <laughs> and, yeah <laughs> and apart from that Cold War was over, you know, it just felt like you know, what's it all for? I went to loads of nice places and so i I guess I still had this this bug you know, this urge to be in the thick of it, and I guess even combat was kind of part of it. and um I thought I was much more likely to do that as a journalist than as a naval officer, and I think that was correct, and that's kind of what happened. yeah.
0: No, I think you're right. But, uh, but growing up did you from, from an early age that so you were, you were focused on the military first and yes. then the journalism yeah, yeah, bug yeah, yeah. hit, uh, yeah.
1: hit from there. Yeah.
0: And so as a 16 year old kid in the Navy, what are you, well, what are you doing?
1: That was when I got the place. So I actually was 18 when I joined, but. I d- okay. So you sign up early. Type yeah, yeah, exactly, thing, They get their yeah. hooks in you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I turned 19, I think like the first week in, into it, but it was like basic training kind of like the Naval Academy, but it's different because it wasn't college. It was like basic officer training, mm-hmm. um, but at Dartmouth. And so I did, uh, like close to a year of sort of Naval training before I went to college, but I was, I was like a Naval officer at university. Although, you know, I mean, I just behaved like everyone else. And but in the vacations, <laughs> I go off to a ship and stuff, you know,
0: no kidding. So, uh, did, did uh what, what what was your specialty? Are you a surface warfare officer at this point? So I started you, you going off the Navy? as
1: yeah, I started off a seaman officer. So, you know, like executive branch. And then I um I guess I was always sort of ambivalent about it and wondering what my path was. And I hadn't grown up by the sea and stuff. Um, so I had this idea to become uh like a Jag, like a naval lawyer. Mm. Um and to do that, you had to go into the it's called. Then it was called supply and secretariat, it's like staff, like staff and logistics. Um, and so I moved into that branch, and so I did sort of staff officer jobs, like I was like an assistant to the, uh, the um, captain of a frigate squadron, and then I was an ADC to the admiral, the chief of naval personnel. It's my kind of last main job that in okay the MOD equivalent of the Pentagon.
0: And then does uh, does Oxford come after this, or where does, no, Oxford uh, was, where does that fall? Basically, in? it
1: was. Joined the navy like eighteen nineteen, a year's basic training, three years of Oxford, then like six and a half years, which actually was my return of service because I got the, okay. the free ride through through college. Got it. Okay. Got
0: it. And then, uh, and then, so, you're in what kind of a ship are you on? Are you just going around? Where, where did you go? Frigates,
1: destroyers. I was on two frigates, um, two two destroyers. Um, so actually, one frigate, two destroyers. Uh, we went to Australia twice. I twice joined ships in Hong Kong. Uh, we went,
0: that's not bad. That's not a bad deal right there going to
1: Australia, (laughs) States, Caribbean. Um, we went to Pakistan, went to Diego Garcia, went to like Scandinavia. I mean, the the last ship I left in, uh, Stockholm, (laughs) a little bit the worst for wear, um, on a, you know, on a plane. and, uh, so yeah, it was, you yeah, know, it was pretty good, but it, it just didn't seem real. It didn't seem, it's just seemed just, you know, join the Navy, see the world girl in every port type of thing, which was great, but it just didn't, you know, what's it all for? You yeah. know, we, we're, we're still doing exercises, guarding the Northern flank of, of NATO when cold war's over, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of that,
1: a lot of that going on. But when did you yeah, join? Diego Garcia. You, joined the mid, you joined like 95? Yeah. 96. 96 yeah. yeah.
0: So came in 96, got to buds in 97. So same type of thing in that 10 year period where uh, mm-hmm. everyone was kind of searching for that, for that mission. And of course it was handed to us on, on September 11th, which you, which you write about in the, in the book, but, uh, same, same type of, of time frame there. But I haven't thought of Diego Garcia in a long time. I passed through there, I think on the way to or from, uh, Gosh, right after September 11th from Kuwait to do the shipboardings for uh, forcing the UN embargo for ships coming out of uh, out of Iraq. And then they'd head right for, for Iranian waters so we couldn't board them and, and turn them around in time. But uh, yeah, Diego Garcia is an interesting yeah. place. But it, Australia is even better. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Before September 11th, same thing. I went to Australia before September 11th. My first deployment was before uh, that happened. So uh, we started off a month in Australia. Um, and we got there to work with the clearance dive team and then they picked up and left. So we just got to sit in Australia for a month, uh, as a brand new guy in the SEAL teams, which wasn't a, wasn't a bad
1: gig. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) I mean, Diego Garcia, I guess it became controversial because of renditions and stuff. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, we just, I guess we stopped to refuel, (laughs) you know, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, but we had a day there. Yeah. There's not much there. nice. (laughs) 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 Nice.
0: And then how do you, how do you find this path into, into journalism? Do you start off just going and. And uh, interning or asking for a job or so I did a uh, bit of helping out. How does that I work? I did a bit
1: of kind of moonlighting when I was still in the navy, and I had a had a flat in Edinburgh, um, and I had a friend who worked on the Scotsman, and I managed to kind of wangle a gig in the summers doing theatre reviews for the during the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, wow,
0: what's the Edinburgh Fringe? It's like
1: a theatre festival, and so I was going reviewing three or four like plays and stuff every day writing two, 300 word reviews. And uh, I mean, I would like cycle up to the newspaper um, and hand it in a printed copy. And then a day or two later it would be published. And if it was a nice review, sometimes it'd be quotes with my name like on billboards. And so that got nice. me the bug of like, I could, just, I could just write and they'll publish it. And then my name's out there and you know. And so I just built up some, some cuttings and then um, I got an in at the Telegraph because Max Hastings was the editor of the Telegraph, and he was kind of pro services. Mm. And uh, so I guess they liked the idea of this like Navy guy sort of coming in. And that was my foot in the door. And then like, I kind of got a trial on news and it just kind of went from there. Okay.
0: Really. No so what was your first uh, something other than a theater review? Where you're like, okay, I'm I'm a journalist now, and uh, I'm investigating, and I'm asking questions, and I'm piecing puzzles together, and maybe I'll write a book one day. Like, where did you take that from theater reviews and into? Hey, this is serious now, and this is going to be my profession.
1: Well, I mean, I guess the new. As soon as I started doing news, I thought like, this is this is where it's at. Like, you know, when everyone's running away, you're running towards it, and yeah. it's you know, you're interviewing people who've just you know been through. You know, stuff. Um, and it's the first draft of history and all that. And so, you know, one of the first things was an IRA bomb actually in very close to the office in in Docklands in London. And, you know, I was in the office and it's just, I think we were on the like 14th floor or something. And yeah, so, so it's actually the bomb yeah. that that book opens with. So mm-hmm. there's kind of a, you know, symmetry or something going on there. And, um, you know, just this almighty bang. And, um, you know, it shook and people dived under the, um, you know, under the desk and stuff. And I just was, you know, amongst a whole bunch of us, we just, the elevators were out. So we ran down the stairs, however many floor, floors it was and sort of ran over there and there's crunching glass and, you know, ambulances and people being evacuated. And, uh, but, you know, I was also, I mean, also it was great. You know, I was thinking, this is this is it. You know, in the
0: action, yeah, exactly. And did you know what it was right away back then? Did your mind go right to? I mean, back like today, if that happened, your mind would probably go a different place than it went
1: back then. I think I forget the exact sequence, but I think the IRA declared an end to the ceasefire, like in an an hour or so before, and it was still wow. so it's being reported, but it was kind of it felt like it was unconfirmed. Um. Uh-huh. But from memory, we knew it was the IRA. I mean, they were the only people, you know, letting off big bombs in central London at that time.
0: Yeah, okay. No and did you grow up with kind of that that specter? Because uh, over here, as a kid in the '80s, growing up, you're reading about it here and there, a magazine article here or there, a, a, a Time magazine, a Newsweek, uh, that sort of a thing, a mention in a in a thriller, that sort of a, a thing. Um, so, did you grow up under the the specter a, a looming specter of the troubles, or was it uh, was it something that was constantly on your your mind growing up during that that time frame and the you know, mid seventies to mid mid eighties type timeframe, or what was, uh, what was that like? And how much understanding did you have of what was actually going on in Ireland?
1: Well, it was a kind of a drip, drip, drip in the background. It wasn't, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't looming. It may have been, if maybe I'd been in London, which was the, you know, the principal sort of economic target. Um, I mean, Ma- I I was living in Manchester and that didn't seem to be a target. Uh, although, mm-hmm. it, you know, in 96 it was, and and in fact they right. blew up Manchester, And that was a bomb um, that originated in South Armagh, just just like the Docklands bomb did. Um, But so it was sort of something that's always in the background. You know, a couple of soldiers killed here. I mean, I remember, I vividly remember when I was uh, 13. um, And uh, again, I cover it in Bandit Country. Uh, There was Mountbatten, uh, you know, the Queen's cousin, Lord Mountbatten, you know, sort of viceroy of India, you know, this kind of. Hallowed figure, and he was assassinated, blown up um, in ca- in County Sligo, in Ireland, um, to August seventy nine, and the same day, uh, eighteen soldiers were killed, uh, mostly from the parachute regiment. And I remember vividly remember my father coming upstairs and going bastards, and it was one of the first times I heard him swear like that. And uh, yeah. so you know, it was it was very much there. You know, they blew soldiers up in pubs, um, and there was you know. Uh, you know, terrorist attacks on the continent. So I think a couple of tourists were killed at one point. A baby was Mm -hmm. shot. They were trying to kill, um, you know, British military, um, you know, in Germany. So it was always there. Also, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm Catholic by birth and um, I was going to uh, like a Catholic school in Manchester and there was lots of Irish, kids from Irish families there. So, you know, I guess it was maybe talked about a little bit more, um, the New York sort of average um place. So you know I was I was always aware of it.
0: Did you was it polarizing to uh to communities back then in uh in the UK like in in London, Manchester, really. area down no. south? No. I mean
1: the IRA was kind of beyond the pale I think in okay. in, in England and you know so many c- civilians were killed. I mean certainly would have been some sympathy for a, a United Island but but actually I think in in England mostly um, that was just overshadowed by the, you know, by the campaign. It's interesting to think today, if, if we'd had social media
0: platforms, uh, the internet back in 60s, 70s and 80s, how they would have used that to, uh, garner support or, uh, to, uh, to promote. I mean, it's, it's so interesting just how that has phenomena has changed, uh, warfare changed, uh, how you can. Uh, can can talk about an ideology and recruit and uh, sway sympathies and and all that, and just thinking how they would have um, would have leveraged that had it been available back.
1: Well, then. you see, up until I forget when they changed it, it must have been after the '94 ceasefire, IRA ceasefire. There was a broadcasting ban, so you so Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA their representatives couldn't, couldn't speak, couldn't speak on television or radio. So they were, Mm. so what would happen was they could be filmed. And so there would be voice actors that would, uh, you know, listen to the audio and speak another version of it on TV. It's just weird. I mean, so, I mean, they were, and there's, you know, there was, um, you know, a bunch of actors when the, the, um, the band was actually a bunch of actors who were out of work. Um, Okay. But it almost drew more attention to them because it, it was so weird and yeah. there was this sort of work, broadcasting sort of workaround. Uh-huh. Um, but it was, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think actually this came up in your um, Peter Bergen podcast. Um, I mean, the IRA did do um, attention-grabbing uh, attacks. And so in London, for instance, uh, it was economic. But it was also, you know, sort of marquee buildings and it was designed to get the headlines and they called them spectaculars, this phrase used, it's a spe- you know, spectacular attacks. And that mm-hmm. was a move away from the sort of low-level guerrilla warfare, you know, attacking police and army in mm-hmm. um, in Northern Ireland um, and trying to grind the British down. And, you know, there were different strands of the strategy. Another one was like, Martin McGuinness talked about sickening the Brits, you know, basically just carry out carrying out sort of attacks which just would make people um you know in england scotland and wales just like, like we just we want nothing to do with these people let's just you know that you know those guys could just go to ireland we'll have a united ireland and we'll, we'll be done with a whole lot of them um but they but they were very clever at um at getting media attention yeah no it's so interesting I, the first time i went to to
0: belfast was uh geez 2000, maybe 2000. anyway. Um, but having grown up, just seeing those pictures of, uh, you know, of the of, of British soldiers and reading about SAS operations up there and and just kind of not really understanding the whole uh, every all of the different uh, the different factions at, at play. Um, but being able to go up there and then go to some of these uh, hotels and bars where meetings took place and, and all that sort of thing was, was fascinating. The photos from back then are just incredible when you go and look at some of those, um, you know, you have somebody with a G3 rifle kneeling down by a school and, and just, uh, you know, a boy and a girl walking by with their backpacks. And it's just, it's just incredible that it wasn't that long ago right. that all this was happening in Europe. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, in, it's incredible. Um, and, and bandit country, when did you decide to, to write it? Was the, was the, the bomb was the impetus to that? Or when did you decide to, to write so, this? Cause
1: it's a, it's a fascinating yeah, book. So it was published 99. Um, so when the bomb went off, that bomb in, um, in Docklands, I'd already, I'd already been appointed as like the Northern Ireland correspondent or the island correspondent. Yeah. Cause I covered the whole island. Um, and that was a big break for me, um, because I was sort of conscious of being the last person left in the newsroom sometimes if there was a, uh, you know, a big story, because I didn't have a background. I didn't have shorthand. I didn't have a background on regional papers. Um, but, you know, I think I proved myself, and I'd done a stand-in period for the, for the previous island correspondent and sort of acquitted myself, you know, reasonably well. But I also think that I was given the job because there was a ceasefire on, and it wasn't seen as a huge story. And so when this bomb went off, it suddenly became a, a big story. So that, that night, as well as doing my reporting, I was thinking, you know, are they going to change their minds? Are they going to send somebody more senior? And I think they probably had those conversations. <laughs> but but for whatever reason i went over there and as soon as i went over there you know it was just me so when something happened it was me and i proved that i could do it and that and that you know sort of banished any sense that you know i wasn't a hard hard news guy um and you know i just completely immersed myself in the story out there i mean it's a small patch of land if anything happened if anything went bang i could i could get there you know within you know, often well, well within an hour, you know, sort of max, like 90 minutes. And I decided that I was just going to go to everything. And I think there were sort of competitors and, uh, other people there who'd sort of become a bit lazy, a bit jaded, who were just taking off Radio Ulster, you know, and just, you know, bomb went off, this number of people were killed, but I wasn't, you know, I don't know. I just didn't even consider doing it that way. Um, and I just became, I became fascinated by South Amara. There's a British army officer who was in an intelligence job then, Rupert Thornelow, who was killed in action in 2009 and was the sort of central impetus for my second book, Dead Men Risen. But uh, yeah, so he was in the, but he was in the Welsh Guards and I got to know him. And he was in, he was in the same job as uh, Robert Nyrak, who was um, a, Grenadier Guards officer who was abducted by the IRA in 1977 never found the body. Body still not being recovered. They found like bits of teeth and blood in the parking lot and stuff. Um, and so Rupert was covering South Armagh, and you know, and he he was physically a little bit like Robert Nyrak, actually, and he had a sort of panache about him. And he, you know, we would talk about how it was basically six families, you know, running this heartland of the IRA. Uh, and that they were sort of smugglers and criminals and had resisted authority through the generations. Um, It was part of the United Kingdom in in name only. So if there was a a burglary and the police were investigating, they had to go with like a platoon of army soldiers. Mm -hmm. Um, The the roads were too dangerous to drive on routinely. So, you know, the trash was brought out by helicopters. And like, as you say, I couldn't believe this is 1996. In the united kingdom and and this stuff is going on and at the same time there were sniper attacks using a 50 caliber rifle and so um it's again in bandit country but um there's kind of a whole chapter on this on the sniper teams but there were, there were two teams operating there um you know with a kind of actually a, a tactic that was used in the uh, by the, the dc uh, sniper you know with a mm. with a like a, a sheet of metal uh in the in the rear of the vehicle and so the sniper would like lie prone with the just the barrel in this like little aperture and then mm-hmm. as soon as the shot had been taken the cord would be pulled the back of the vehicle would close and then the driver would just drive off so all this was happening. The chief of staff of the RA was a guy called Slab Murphy who was um sort of a, a you know a pig farmer and smuggler who lived on the border, His farm was on the border, literally on the border. The border ran through his property, so part of it was in the Irish Republic, part of it was in Northern Ireland, and so it just felt like all roads sort of pointed to South Armagh. And I remember driving, um, driving from the south. So the IRA had shot an Irish policeman in the south, which was very controversial. It was part of a, it was a robbery that sort of went wrong. Yeah. Politically, very bad news for them and a big story. I was covering that. And on the way back, um, it sort of hit the news that there's a big search and arrest operation in South Amar to do with the Docklands bomb, you know, months yeah. earlier. Yeah. And um, I remember driving across the border and seeing the sign. It said, I think it said four Hill 7, you know. four kills was in South Amar. And so I just, instead of going north, I just turned left in South Armand, immediately there's British soldiers, you know, in the undergrowth, there's, you know, there's, um, uh, metropolitan police. So like basically London forensic police officers in these forensic suits collecting evidence because they trace the, they trace the vehicle and therefore the bomb back to South Armand. I just remember thinking this place, nice. this is, this is incredible. And, um, so where's the book, you know? Yeah. And, uh, right. Right. And there wasn't one. And so, yeah. you know, it felt kind of almost a little bit arrogant or presumptuous at the time, but I thought, well, I'll, I'll do it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go. And, um, and so that's how Bandit Country came about. And so that was, so I was there sort of three and a half years and the last sort of 18 months or so, um, you know, along with the day job, I was, you know, every excuse to go to South Omar, um, and there were and there were many you know i took yeah. had a girlfriend from there whose parents lived down there you know I just it helped yeah exactly <laughs> you know, um you know, I just soaked up everything about the place um and yeah I got to know a bunch of of young british army uh officers who you know worked in intelligence or or close to who you know shared my sort of fascination with this place and so yeah, that's what that's I. Did.
0: Did you get, uh, did you have a publishing contract? Like before did you, for nonfiction, you know, in in this country, anyway, you can sell an idea or uh, a chapter or an outline, that sort of a thing. Fiction, of course, you have to have the whole thing all the way done for anyone that's interested, but, uh, this one, did you just do it on your own and, uh, and then shop it
1: around or did you get, uh, get support from the publisher? Yeah. So I did. Did Beforehand. I found an, actually, um, a guy called Sean O'Callaghan, who, um, was an IRA man, um, from County Kerry, who had gone over the, to the other side and 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 become an Irish police agent, uh, and he wrote a very good book called *The Informer*. Um, I used to vi- I used to go and visit him in jail. <laughs> he was in sort of in isolation in Mugabry, uh Prison, uh, and so I, you know, I'd go and visit him, and we'd sp- speak for hours about the IRA. And it mean, was another part of my immersion really because mm-hmm. he was just you know. This is how they think. It's different from, you know, the way you think and most people think. And this is the psyche, you know, and just get into the mindset. And um, anyway, so Sean had some contact in publishing. um, And so he put me in touch with an agent. And I mean, the the proposal, the proposal, (laughs) it's it's hilarious now because proposals are like 15,000 words with like sort of know, a prologue and, you know, a sample of writing, and this was two pages of A4. I mean, it was kind of perfect. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) it was great. Um, I mean, it wasn't sort of a big book deal. It was sort of an Irish imprint of, of, of Hodder and Stoughton, you know? So, I mean, it was, you know, it was a a decent deal. I I can't remember how much money was involved, not, not very much. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did have a I did have a contract, and uh, so I was I I don't think I could write an entire book without having a contract. Maybe that's <laughs> why knowing. I haven't done
0: any fiction. Fiction, yeah, exactly, yeah, fiction. You got to go all in uh, and be prepared. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Can people still find this out there? Because I went when I couldn't find it in the boxes initially. I went and was was looking, and it. it was uh, wasn't as easy to find, obviously, as uh, as your newer books here, but, uh, but it's such a fascinating book. And it, it, if people can find it out there, definitely well, search. This yeah. I mean, the it. trouble
1: is it's out of print. It's a very complicated read. It's one of the most sought out sought after, um, out of print books in the English language, which is kind of wow. dubious. That's cool. It's cool, but it's kind of a dubious distinction because you don't get any royalties right. from that. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you copies can cost, you know, 50, 75 bucks online. Um, and so I would like to, uh, get it republished or at least do an e-version. And, you know, I talk about it occasionally, but, you know, this was a book that pushed the envelope. And so there were, there were, you know, there were legal issues that people sued came after us. And so it's kind of, you know, wrapped up in that. And the
0: legal thing, I saw that uh, somewhere, and I didn't quite know what it was. Um, a public inquiry? Is this the public inquiry thing? No, that's higher? just another thing. <laughs> oh, that's another thing. Okay, because I didn't know what that was. I was going to ask you about that later. Yeah. So, so you finish this 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 book up, and uh, and it publishes. And are you still reporting on Northern Ireland, or do you have you moved on to
1: another uh, assignment at this point? Right. So the way I did that book, I, del- I This was sort of deliberate. I thought I'm just going to leave it all on the field. I'm going to. I'm going to push the envelope as I, you know, I'm going to try and name as many people as possible. I'm going to try and, you know, every, you know, kind of gory detail, I'm going to put it in there. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm not going to try and be polite. I'm not going to try and sort of, um, you know, stroke any future sources. I'm just going to do this book and then I'm going (laughs) to leave and sort of, you know, whatever broken China is left is, you know, nothing to do, no problem for me, you know, my professional life. I mean, and so that that's what happened. So I, because um, this, during this period, uh, there was another IRA ceasefire in 90, summer of 97. Then there was a peace deal, which is, you know, still pretty shaky, but a peace deal, nevertheless, in 98. Um, there was a lot of politics. and hmm. And that's what made it the biggest story in the world, really, for a time was, you know, Clinton administration was involved, um, you know, it was a historic peace deal. And this sort of interplay between politics and violence, I think, um, mm-hmm. was better than all one thing or all the other in terms of news. But um, so I hadn't really expected to particularly, but I I started covering a lot of politics, writing about politics a lot. And, you know, I think did, it was seen to have done it reasonably well. And so... I guess my reward for that was to be given a job in Washington, to be sent to be the bureau chief in Washington, which was was great. And it was a huge, I mean, I'd only been, so I got here in 99, September 99. So I'd I'd only been a journalist for five years and I'd only been out out of the Navy for five years. And so, you know, I was 33 years old. Um, So it's a big, big promotion and a big opportunity. Um, And I was very happy, but At the same time, I sort of felt "Mm, this is just going to be guys in suits and the White House and the Oval Office and the Capitol Hill and senators, which I didn't really feel was my thing. Um, And also it was a little bit scary because I've covered this very small story in terms of the scale of it um, in great depth for three and a half years and become kind of, you know, I guess a sort of World expert in it, but it was a very small story, and I hadn't paid a whole lot of attention to the rest of the world because I was so oh, sort of focused. Right. And then all of a sudden, I was having to write about, you know, nuclear treaties and right. you know international relations and you know stuff happening in Africa and China. I mean, it was great. I mean, it was great. You know, sort of on the job learning. Um, but it was it was very much out of my comfort zone. But that's good, you know. I mean, it's good to do things yeah. outside your comfort zone. And, um, yeah, but I think I, I remember thinking, you know, a better fit would have been, say, to go to Jerusalem, you know, which was the, kind of the other big job. Which you do later, right? Do you do I that do that. Later? I did that later. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so but what, uh you, when this came out, though, and, you're, and you're, are you in Washington when this yes, comes out then? Or, yeah. And are you worried about uh, any security type issues or anything like that? Or is that nothing that doesn't cross your mind?
1: Uh, no, I mean, the IRA, generally speaking, didn't target journalists um i mean i felt i always felt i would never go back to south amar um <laughs> <laughs> um i actually did go about 5 years ago i kind of slipped in you know went to the bakery in the square and cross McGlen and you know wandered around a little bit but um it's a very small place um you know there's a guy um uh, in there who i gave the pseudonym of the surgeon um and since then, there's a guy called Sean Jared Hughes who's publicly in court identified himself as as uh, as the surgeon. But uh, I used to see the guy that I called the surgeon every time I got there. You know, he'd be sitting on a wall. He'd be driving in his SUV past me. I mean, it was it was a bit sort of spooky, and, and that's how how small it was. So um, I'd be given advice actually by. And I very good advice by a senior, fairly senior IEC officer who I think was very sceptical of me doing this, this sort of young English guy, you know, blundering into South Amar. But he said, he said to me, uh, never pretend to be anybody else because, you know, that's kind of what Robert and I directed and it turned out very badly for him. So just be upfront about who you are and what you're doing and always have a plan to leave. <laughs> And and I did stick to those two things. So if I went to a commemoration, or um, you know, like an IRA commemoration, or some or a political gathering, or some kind of protest about the troops being there or whatever, I would go sort of right up to the front. You know, shake hands with the local Sinn Fein guy who, by that point, I'd got to know, and Mm -hmm. you know, just be the opposite of blending into the background. And then sometimes I would see some of the guys who I knew were the senior IRA men. could see them and then they got and speak to the Sinn Fein guy. And so they they all knew who I was. Um and yeah, and then the other thing about being comfortable, just never feel comfortable. You know, or even if you start to feel comfortable, always think, okay, it could just turn um at any moment and and you just sort of need to get out. Um yeah. But yeah, so that that that's that's why I wanted to write this thing and then leave because I think it could have been problematic. I think the IRA kind of liked the book because yeah. it showed that they were militarily accomplished and efficient. Mm-hmm. And that the sort of, the quote terrorism uh, was was a minor part of the South Amar Ar- South IRA because it was yeah. more of a kind of a fair fight, like a guerrilla campaign against an occupying army. And it was, mm. you know, overwhelmingly Catholic. So the sectarian elements of it, of the of the sort of conflict were sort of uh, much smaller than in other parts of, of Northern Ireland, and so I, f- I think they felt that they got their due recognition. You know, yeah, and there's got it. you know there's SAS guys and and you know uh, British Army intelligence sort of saying, you know, this was a you know this was a worthy enemy. You know, they, yeah. you know, we admired them, and even people saying stuff like, you know, if I'd been born here, I'd probably join the IRA, and so. I think there was a lot for them to to take from it, and the but at the same time, you know um, they it probably caused some of them have, have some sort of maybe legal issues and kind of brought them yeah. out of the shadows.
0: Right. One
1: guy was upset, he didn't mind the twenty murders being attributed to to him, but uh, you know cheating on his wife and being a womanizer that didn't go down very well. I heard he, he was, <laughs> he was particularly upset about that.
0: Okay. With the murders, not right, so much right, the right, other right. stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, my wife's fine with murder, but looking at another woman, oh, thats a yeah, now
0: you, now you've gotten me in trouble. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, I felt I was well out of there. but in terms of, uh, 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 what well, yeah, I didn't think the IRA were going to go after me and, you know, Got it. So, so you secret. end up
0: in Washington D.C. and what's the yeah, what are the responsibilities of a a bureau chief when you're when you're out there?
1: So it was me, another reporter uh, in D.C. There was a New York correspondent and an L.A. correspondent, and we covered the you know we cover the whole of the U.S. and I guess Canada. And I also went to like <laughs> Colombia, Mexico as well. Um, so you know, D.C. was obviously mainly politics. So um, mm. I covered the 2000 election and uh uh you know bush gore and the hanging chads and you know hung out in Tallahassee during all that um, and is this sunday times or daily telegraph that was daily it's telegraph okay uh at that point um and uh you know then we're into the bush administration and uh you know the telegraph is editorially conservative so you know there was a lot of interest in um you know republican administration and um you know, so they really wanted me to sort of uh you know get stuck into that and so so yeah you know so i'm you know i'm so i guess january 2001 so that 2001 up till 911 i'm just covering a new administration yeah. um and then i guess the thing that i sort of hoped for um and thought was better suited to my sort of skill set it sort of comes to me you know on nine eleven, so I'm in Washington DC on nine eleven, Um, walking into the office, uh, just as the first plane hits, uh, I see all the report. You know, it's Cessna, small aircraft, something weird. But then, you know, like so many other people, I'm watching the TV and I see like an airliner, you know, fly into the second tower. And that, like, okay, this is a terrorist attack. You know, Al Qaeda has been talked about almost immediately, and you know, there's all these sort of thoughts in my mind. It's the biggest story of my life. Um, You know, I can't screw it up. It's a five hour time difference. So I need to work out what's going on like very, very quickly. Um, Has anybody I know been killed? Is there going to be another attack? You know, flight 93 was in the air. um, And, you know, so I remember thinking maybe they're going to go for the White House, which was like a couple of blocks away. Um, They could just miss and well, there's nothing I can do about it, you know, worrying about it's not going to solve anything. so And I just have to put it out of my mind. So, you know, I just got to work.
0: Jeez. And so what are those first few months like then? Are you stay in DC for those, the years that you're assigned there and then move on? Or does, yeah, does, uh, so, does 9-11 change that that timeline for you?
1: So, I mean, I was pretty keen to sort of get to Afghanistan straight away.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Same with us.
1: Right. You know, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, My sort of, uh, you know, I got a kind of, of a whiff of sort of combat and military operations in Northern Ireland. And, you know, I I really felt that I could cover that well. Um, But also my whole time in the Navy, you know, I tried really hard to, you know, get to the Gulf War and, you know, instead I was stuck in Scotland. um, And I remember, you know, my boss saying, Toby, there'll be plenty of time for medals. And I remember thinking, no, there won't. <laughs> <laughs> and there wasn't. You know, left the navy with with no medals, and <laughs> you know, and uh, having joined just after the Falklands and missed the Gulf. You know, and having left the navy because you know it wasn't where the real action was. So I, I had a, mm-hmm. you know, and all this stuff with my grandfather and everything. You know, there was, you know, I really felt like I can't miss some. I can't miss. Another war, you know, how many wars can there be, you know, that I'm not involved in? And, but they were, you know, the office was correctly saying, but listen, you built up all these contacts in the Bush administration, uh, you know, the wars in America as well, you know, America was a war zone. So I did, you know, I did feel that it was an important story and I did throw myself into it. Um, but you know, my heart was a little bit elsewhere and then, you know, fast forward to Iraq and when the statue came down. Saddam's statue came down and, you know, I had my head in my hands. Like, I can't believe I've missed this. But, you know, spoiler alert, it wasn't all over. So, yeah,
0: yeah. I know. We all thought we were going to miss it. Right. If you weren't deployed yeah. on 9-11, you thought, oh, man, I've missed it again. Because that was kind of uh, after Vietnam, that was kind of what happened. If you, if you missed, uh, if you weren't at Delta for Desert One, if you weren't at uh, Grenada, if you weren't at Panama, if you weren't in Mogadishu, like if you weren't at those flashpoints, well you missed them. Yeah. Uh, and of uh, the entire military, like it's a very slim uh, portions of the military that are involved in those, in those actions. And, uh, a lot of us thought, uh, most of us probably thought that it was kind of like that again, just cause that's what, that's what our most recent memories, uh, were. So, uh, so yeah, and we, we had felt the, really lucky Our
1: LA correspondent <laughs> who's this young guy covering Hollywood and stuff, but who could be spared. And I guess they felt I couldn't be spared. Um, he was um, embedded with Third uh, Infantry Division going no into kidding. Iraq. In Iraq, yeah. And I was like, no "Are kidding. you kidding me?" <laughs> and that's I was talking amazing. to him, and you know, I was I was happy for him, but I was like, "Oh, you know, I was dying a thousand deaths inside."
0: Yep, that's like guys that were already oh fours, O fives, sixes that uh, were going to miss the tactical level maneuvering of troops and all that sort of thing. They were already in that kind of managerial type position when nine eleven happened. Like they they missed it. Um, they could still lead, but they're leading from a tactical operations center. They're right. allocating forces and, and that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I felt pretty lucky. It seems like a strange thing to say, but uh, to be an E-5 on nine eleven and to be deployed and to be jumping on uh, a C-17, headed for the Middle East. And uh, we thought we were going into Afghanistan, but what we did was land in Kuwait and take over Team 3's shipboarding operations, and those guys went in. And then I ended up there like a year later or something. But um, but yeah, we we, we felt uh, most guys back in the States that were getting ready to deploy thought they'd missed it. Yeah. And of course, that did not end up being... And some guys, just like, just like you, looking for how am I going to get to this thing you know, by 2003, 2004, if guys hadn't been in a platoon, because we still had commitments other places in the Philippines and in Colombia and Africa, all these different places, Europe even, uh, Germany, where we had these long-term commitments. And uh, some guys thought, okay, I've had a deployment to Colombia, one to Stuttgart, Germany. I've missed it. I'm going to keep missing it. I'm just going to get out and contract. And so that's why a lot of those guys went over and did the Blackwater type thing just because they thought that would get them in the fight. And of course, you know, those, those fears of missing it were, uh, unfounded. We didn't know it obviously at the time, but, uh, you know, 20, yeah, 20 years to get, yeah. to, to get into that, into that mix. So if you just, you know, what kind of did your thing and, and tried to, to be the best operator you could possibly be and be always volunteering and saying yes, and you were going to get in it eventually. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, And it was it the was same with journalists. I mean, there was a sort of a generation of journalists who pretty much all went unless they really resisted it. Mm. Um, and you know, that was great. Of course, now we've sort of got another generation of people who, who sort of haven't, but, uh, yeah, there were a lot of kind of unlikely, uh, war correspondents, some of whom were, you know, were excellent when, the, yeah. when they got out there. So interesting. And so, so
0: what do you, when do you, uh, leave Washington and how is that, uh, how many years are you there before you actually, uh, leave and take that next assignment? So,
1: uh, I guess I was there for, uh, four uh, four years. Yeah, so I was there. I was there for four years. So Um, I finally get posted to the Middle East in, uh, September three to Jerusalem. And, you know, I'm sort of thinking, uh, the Iraq war's over. It's just mopping up, you know, Afghanistan's (laughs) over. I know Afghanistan's over. Uh, but you know, Hey, I'm going to cover the Israeli Palestinian conflict in the Middle East and the rest of the region. So great. So, so, um, I'm in Jerusalem and, uh, I went in, you know, my pat Iraq was on my patch um, so I went into Iraq, uh, the, what's a patch. Is that like, like territory? So yeah. Territory. Yeah. Area. Yeah. 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 Is that a Britishism? Maybe it is. It might be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's my patch. Um, I like it. Yeah. I put it in a book. I like that. Right. <laughs> yeah. The patch, you know, it's, it's good. Um, so yeah, September, 2003, uh, I get, I arrive and I, within a month, maybe it was November. I went into Iraq and, uh, and, uh, I was with, uh, I was embedded for a while with 101st Airborne and Petraeus was, you know, in command. Mm. And I remember, you know, it was, there was talk, you know, there was an insurgency then. And is that up in Missoula? Are you in Missoula up there? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we drove from Baghdad, which is shortly afterwards was a journey, you, you know, he didn't make. Right. Yeah. Uh, a year
0: later, probably not.
1: Yeah. And, um, uh, but you know, I remember going around with, uh, some of the 101st Airborne guys, thinking like, wow, well, okay, so I wouldn't walk through that gate. This is like Northern Ireland stuff. I wouldn't walk through that gate. If I were you, that's the most mm. obvious route. Um, so I, you know, it felt like something was was brewing, but um, I was a bit, I was actually resistant to spending a lot of time in Iraq at that point. So I have to, you know, I have to cover the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, you know, there was a, you know, there's a lot of kind of good stuff there. And it was also like a combat. So yeah. um, but then April 2004, I remember um <laughs> you know walking into a bar and there was a guy called uh Patrick. Uh, so the American Colony uh hotel, which is sort of on the green line, it's sort of famous yeah. kind of for spies and journalists and you know, kind of the two sides meeting kind of thing. And so I walked into the American Col- American colony bar and this guy pa- French journalist for Le Figaro, I think. Um at the bar, and he just turns around and he says, Ah oh, Toby, yeah, what the fuck are we doing here? We should be in Iraq. The story is in Iraq. We're <laughs> fucking Jerusalem. And I remember thinking, like, geez, he's right. He's right. You know, because there was um, you know, an insurgency in Ambar, uh Sunni, and there was sheer insurgency in Sada City. And I just thought, like, okay, I think he's right. And then the next morning I phoned the office and basically signed off and said, we'll have a string of cover covering Jerusalem. I'll go to Iraq. And that's what I'm gonna cover for the foreseeable future. And that's what happened for the next 18 months or so. I was just sort of in and, in and out of Iraq.
0: Uh,
1: no kidding, between Jerusalem
0: down. and uh, and Baghdad or something like that? So yeah, like I, that, kept my,
1: I kept my apartment in Jerusalem. And so when I came out of Iraq, I would, um, come out via Amman and, and then, yeah, just hang out in Jerusalem usually, and then go back in. But I was no No longer covering the story unless something big went bang and I just happened to be there and I, and I would. No kidding. Yeah.
0: I'm doing a lot of research into, uh, to Israel, um, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Golan Heights. I'm in for this latest novel that I'm writing. And I really was trying to get there because i hadn't been i haven't been to israel yet i missed uh in the seal teams we had some exchange programs that i didn't uh i was always in iraq or afghanistan i never got to to do those um but it was always fascinating to me so it's my one thing that i wish i had done in the military that i didn't um, was to go to see how flotilla 13 does their uh does, does their hell weeks and their selection and all that sort of a thing or see what they kind what they're using for rebreather systems and, and all that i never got to do to do that um so i haven't been there and over this whole year i thought oh COVID restrictions will, are going to open up at some point, and then they'd open up, and I'd jump on and try to figure out how to get to Israel. And then all by the time I did that, it would be shut down again, or something right. would happen, or you had to have family members there, or, or you had to be an Israeli citizen, or all these different things kept changing over the last year. So I never got to put oh, boots so on the ground. Yeah. No, I haven't been there. So um, you know, luckily, there's you know, Google Earth and Google Maps and all that sort of thing. And I have a lot of people that are um, that have family there that I can talk to to try to bring some of that local flavor in, but obviously, as you know, there's no substitute for putting boots yeah. on the ground and actually walking the sights and the smells and the people, yeah, that yeah, you meet yeah. and the, the questions that you ask that you didn't even know you were going to ask if you were back at a desk riding the mountain, thinking, "Hey, what should I? What should I ask if I go over there?" Yeah, um, it's so, an incredible so anyway, place. I mean, yeah, I can't wait to go. It's
1: incredibly <sighs> intense. So you know, every Israelis served, you know served in the military. There are mm-hmm. guns everywhere. Um, you know there's a sense of uh living life because it might end tomorrow you know you're mm-hmm. under this existential threat um mm-hmm. and it's very hot like so you know like road rage and people are in your face and to get things mm-hmm. done uh you know you kind of have to shout and swear and gesticulate and so it's funny cuz i'm a little bit that way temperamentally <laughs> um, but in the US, right in. <laughs> but in the us i'd had to like
0: Tone it down, Not really. Because I remember,
1: <laughs> I'm mean, actually it was in 2000 after the um, the recount. Um, I was I was in Miami, and I remember being in a line for a plane and uh, flight, and you know uh, it was a long line, and the, the flight was you know 45 minutes or something, and and I kept on saying like I need to I need to get on this flight. You know, it's like kind of the last helicopter out of Saigon kind of thing. That's what it yeah. felt felt like, and um, I got to the front of the line, it was, you know, it was 20 minutes and I'm like, you know, and they're like, flight's closed. And I remember like thumping the desk and it was just like security, you know, <laughs> everyone's room, you froze. And so I, yeah. learned, you know, I learned to kind of tone, tone all that down because it doesn't work here generally. And then in Israel, you know, I had have to, to wrap it, it huh? all up to get anything done. You had to, I mean, that's funny. thumping the desk is like, that's, that's the opening. That's normal. Stable, you know, yeah. So um that's introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So yes, but I so you know, in some ways I regret. Um, I mean, there's only you know, internationally, there's only room for one big story in the Middle East any one time, and it mm-hmm. clearly it was Iraq. And so, um, but you know, I would have liked to have uh been in uh Israel covering the story for longer. Yeah, no, what in an interesting spot. I can't wait to go spend some time over there.
0: And then from there, where do you go? Do you what what is this imprisonment in Zimbabwe that I read about? What's uh what's that? that all about?
1: So, uh, yeah, so I was based in, based in the Middle East until, uh, end of 2004 and, you know, the store, you know, I I did Fallujah in November, 2004, you know, with, um, the first infantry division and, you know, it was a great story. It was becoming more and more dangerous. People were getting their heads chopped off, you know, journalists and others were being you know kidnapped and put in orange jumpsuits. Yeah. Um, I was having a lot of dreams about it you know I'd watched all the execution videos and the sort of the risk reward balance journalistically had had shifted. I mean it was mm. becoming much much more risky for less and less space in the newspaper, you know and wow. so it was kind of like, yeah, you know, and also all the talk was all, all journalists seem to be talking about was security and, you know, and everybody had to have like chase cars and armed guards. There were debates about whether we should carry weapons ourselves. And so I was just thinking, yeah. you know, this, this is just kind of, it's, it's not worth it. It's becoming not worth it for, um, you know, for you're becoming
0: targets. You're becoming essentially, you know, yeah, not not combatants, but from the other side, you you are essentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What was the hotel that everybody stayed at in uh, the Green Zone in Baghdad? The, the uh, well, I'm getting the name of it right, all the journalists stayed in. Well, initially uh, a couple, was, but
1: initially it was the Palestine, which is the big one. Um, there's one other one. I but then there's the Hammer. I, I stayed in the Hammer Hotel, and that oh, wasn't okay. in the Green Zone. It was outside the Green Zone. Oh, okay. But that uh, was I'm kind sure. of the journalists' hotel, and uh, I mean, actually, so that in it would have been, I think uh early 2006 uh or maybe the end of 2005 i was there and i had an embed uh in Ambar. And we had to leave at sort of uh 2 i think we had to leave at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning in the green zone it was very dangerous it was the, it was there was a curfew it was very dangerous on the streets and we were told we were told to be there at midnight and wait for 3 hours of the flight And I was with a photographer, actually the guy who I ended up being in jail with in Zimbabwe. And we were like, screw that. We're not going to the green zone, just wait for three hours for a helicopter. We'll just sort of, you know, rock up at 1am or something. So we went there, green zone's closed, like all the gates are closed. Uh And we're talking to Georgians, as in former Soviet Republic, you know, not Mm -hmm. United States, state of Georgia. And they, you know, we're talking to the American press officers who were just like a couple hundred yards away, and they're like, We can't do anything. Georgians are on the gate. You know, we can't let you in. We're, we're standing at this gate, which is a big target, and yeah. uh, not feeling great about it. And uh, uh, somebody's like, You know, we should just go back. Well, we can get go on the embed tomorrow. It'll be okay. Um, and we're past the curfew, so we're not allowed to be on the streets. And we're worried about the driver. Uh, because he has to get home afterwards and, you know, he's every bit, if not more at risk than us. Um, and so, uh, the driver, uh, was just like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. You know, we'll try the other gate. And so we eventually, we got round to the other gate and we got in, let in, and we drove around, got, got let in, got to the helicopter, flew out to Ambar. Uh, and the driver went home that morning, the early hours. So this was like 2, 3 AM, like early hours, like two massive suicide bombs at, at the Hammer Hotel. Kill, I can't remember how many people killed, like 18 people or something, it's like a head in the pool, you know, yeah. and completely destroyed. There's h- hardly anybody there. Um, but I have thought about this often, that driver was subsequently killed uh, by a suicide bomb. Um, but if he'd have just said, as most drivers would have done, ah, this is too dangerous, we just need to go, because he, he's going to get him paid anyway. And in fact, he might yeah. get paid twice because he's going to take us the next day. Um, so if he hadn't done that, we would have gone back to the Hammer Hotel. And I, I never worked out what happened to my room, you know, but mm-hmm. there were, you know, all the windows blown in, there were sort of wardrobes, you know, turned into matchsticks. And so I, I could have died that, a few right. hours if it had to be for this driver so sort of incredible you know but that's the way life is these random fate. things
0: yep that's why i started thinking more about fate is uh in uh in ramadi in 2005 2006 when anything could be an id anywhere you know a piece of a garbage a trash can you know a donkey you know whatever it is you know a pothole or something looks a little a little off like anything could have. so i started thinking about fate and uh the uh, the short story, the novella, the, the Bridge of San Luis Rey, when they have these people on this on this bridge that collapses, and the story is about why all those why are those the ones that are right. on that bridge when this thing collapses? Like what was it? Uh, and it you know it's it's uh, it's all about about fate. It's uh, it's
1: crazy. You mostly can't do anything about it. Uh, the, the only sort of thing to do with superstition I have with this is I I will never change anything at the last minute. So. Mm. Cause I feel like I've read and written too many stories of the guy that, you know, went from one vehicle to the other, you know, and then got killed.
0: Yeah. It's so crazy. So Cause it works like the, the, the other way too. Yeah. Know, the person so, that gets on I, the helicopter over here and decides, but, oh no, I'm going to go over here. Yeah, and then that, that the one, one
1: goes down. Die in, or is that, are they going to die in this one?
0: It works both ways. It's so crazy.
1: So, but I generally, I try quite hard not to do any last minute changes.
0: Okay. You're not going with your gut. You're just out. You're just committed to yeah, I mean, uh, to, to one plan. side of that coin. Like I'm going with the plan, right?
1: But <laughs> you asked so about Zimbabwe, but so yeah. So th- so this was, um, or I guess before
0: I get to that, are you when you're covering the Middle East from Jerusalem? Um, is that does Afghanistan fall under that? Does uh, you know, South Central Asia fall under that? That's a different. That's a different bureau. That's handling yeah, that's Afghanistan. So, I guess so you're that was out of Delhi, um, okay?
1: And they'd have a stringer. They'd have stringers in Afghanistan, or they'd have like London people flying in and out, and then okay. of course. During this whole period, there's this sort of sense, you know, news-wise that Afghanistan's over, you know, that there's nothing going on. Iraq is where it's at. And that doesn't- And I want to talk
0: to you about that too when we get to that in First Casualty. I want to talk to you about that about December 2001. But- But that doesn't
1: start to to change until, um, you know, until early 2006. And then the British going into Helmand, and that's the first time- Mm -hmm. I went in in uh, January 2006. And that was sort of the first time I went into Afghanistan. And then, of course, that leads to Dead Men Risen because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the 10,000 British troops uh, uh, end up in Helmand and, and, you know, kind of some, some very sort of uh, bloody times there. Um, but, uh, yeah, so after all this Iraq stuff, um, you know, I'm starting to think I need to just kind of spread my wings a bit and just... You know it was just getting a little bit too crazy. Or I mean, also, I guess I'm like almost 40 at that point. I'm single and you know, no <laughs> I, I was
0: hesitant to ask. I'm like, <laughs>
1: yeah, no steady girlfriend. Yeah. And so, you know, so Julian Simmons, who was a photographer for the telegraph, and I were in Zimbabwe covering the parliamentary elections, the Mugabe regime. In, where are you
0: out of now? What, what uh what so I was in London then.
1: So I had a job for okay. the chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph. So I was based in London, but that was crazy as well. I was flying to a different country almost every week. And at the wow. beginning of the week, I didn't know where I was going to be. And wow. often I'd be landing at, you know, in a new country, like I land in Riyadh, you know, on a Thursday morning, having to file by Saturday morning some big wow. magisterial story. So that was that was a bit crazy in itself. Gosh. Um, But yeah, so based in London, and we're covering uh, the parliamentary elections in Zimbabwe. And uh, we've been there a couple of weeks. We were pretty, I guess we were getting kind of confident. And so we we said to each other, "Right, we we don't want to just follow one of these white farmer candidates. That's what everybody tended to do. Um, Let's go with a black candidate, a black opposition candidate. Um, And... uh, uh, so that's what we did. And, you know, in hindsight, we could have done a little bit more homework because we were with this black candidate in an area where, you know, we were the only white guys for 20, 30 plus miles around. so We stood out and uh, it was a ZANU PF area. So a mm-hmm. Mugabe sort of regime yeah. area. And so we went to a polling station and... So, you know, so we're, we're not allowed in the country because we haven't got a permit. We haven't got a state permit to um, cover the elections. And we didn't want to get a state permit because then we'd be followed around or we'd be we'd be refused and then they'd know who we were and ha- mm-hmm. may, they might have a, like a, our names at border checkpoints and stuff. And so we'd just gone in as tourists, you know, illegally, technically illegally. Um, and so- and Does so, the
0: paper support that? Is that, or do you have to do yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, serif- I think these things
1: were looked at you know, these things not were looked at. I'll tell
0: you about it later. Yes,
1: right. Uh, okay. No, we, absolutely. We, they knew what we were doing. Oh, you um, used to have
0: those things i read about the guys in Vietnam saying, uh, unless otherwise directed, and they'd leave it at a time when the person is not going to see it. And then they'd go out and do, do the mission. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Unless otherwise directed, this is where I'll be type of okay, a thing. Yeah.
1: So. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they definitely uh, looked at their procedures again after what happened to us. But um, <laughs> I'd actually done my interviews And I was just kind of wandering around, but I mean, listen, I'm a white guy in PF area in Zimbabwe. You know, it was obviously I wasn't from around there and, but Julian was attracting more attention because he was still taking photos. And so they're kind of around him and this guy's kind of, you know, kind of trying to sort of detain him and say that we're going to call the police. And I remember speaking to Julian and we were just like, okay, this, this, we're not, Talking our way out just isn't really working here. And I said, like, what? You know, we agreed, let's the cars outside, you know, let's just walk really quickly to the exit and just jump in the car. And hopefully, you know, before they, you know, work out what to do, we'll just be in the car and we'll just go. And so we did that. It was, we knew it was a gamble. We did that. And then somebody grabs Julian <laughs> and then we're detained. You know, and then it just kind of snowballs and the police come and we get handcuffed and, you know, we get taken to the police station. Now, luckily I drove, I drove the rental car to the police station. And so on the way, uh, notebooks and I had books, um, like books about Zimbabwe and threw them out the window. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and Julian had already taken out his SD card from his camera. So all his mm-hmm. photos, he'd hit it. He hid it under a, like a blackboard duster because it was a school it was a school the polling station. Wow. Um but then you know uh we then being questioned by the police um and we're just like we're just tourists i had a camera which was full of, we'd been on safari much of the annoyance of the news desk because i said we need to create our tourist we cover some cover yeah
0: cover for action
1: yeah pictures of lions and hippos and antelope and stuff yeah. and um so that was good it was pretty good cover and um but anyway, we get we had a lawyer. Uh, you know, we got word back to the newspaper. A, a lawyer turned up who was like a Beatrice Mtetwa, who's a, like a famous now. Mm. There's been a documentary about her, like human rights lawyer oh, wow. in in Zimbabwe. Who's been she's actually from Botswana, but she practices it in Zimbabwe. She's oh. been beaten up and stuff, and uh, she's a pretty tough woman. Um, anyway. You know we think, oh, it's just gonna be a night in the cells, and then oh, it's gonna be the weekend. Um, and then, uh, then, and then we get taken to the Roman prison. Uh, and all of a sudden, we're in the sort of general population, uh, oh. like a hundred. We had a hundred plus in our cell, and it was built for like 24 or something. And they'd ripped the beds out, and we all were sleeping on the floor. Wow. Um, and it ended up being two weeks, and uh, we were put on trial. Charged with practicing journalism without accreditation, um, oh, and we were acquitted. We were acquitted. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I'm not a journalist. You know, I was time served. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we were deported. Um, and so we just no, you know driven to the airport. Big X put in the passport over the really? Zimbabwe stamps. And so uh, you're,
0: you're never allowed to come back or something yeah, like that? Ban- or is there? As
1: far as I know, I'm a banned person in Zimbabwe. Uh, I thought oh, about wow. going back a few years ago for a documentary project. Uh, I'm sure I could sneak in, and Mugabe's dead now. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. So I'm banned in Sim- in Zimbabwe, and but
0: that's crazy. Did you write a story about it when you got back? Yes, whole...
1: I mean, so I think we got out on a Saturday, and the and the deadline is a sat- is Saturday. Wow, for a Sunday newspaper, and I remember sort of, you know. You start to think about these sort of mundane things. I remember starting to think like, uh, you know, it's too late for this week's paper. You know, I could, I'm going to have a whole few days to recover and sleep, and you know, do this like finely tuned piece. And of course, they're like, file. You need to file like immediate. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Uh- <laughs> and I kept, I kept notes, so I mean, I mean, I got on very well with Julian, which was good because we were chained together for most of the time. You know. So if if we wanted to go and take a dump, we we had to both go together, you know. There you go. You know, so we were kind of in sync, yeah. um, <laughs> and um, you yeah, know, there was sort of lots of banter and all the time, and and so I was able to take notes. So somebody gave me a pen. I had these tiny little bits of paper, um, and I would like write these little notes and like you know keep them sort of in my pocket or in my you know like sandal and stuff, um, and it was very visually incredible like particularly like at dawn like the light would flood in and the all these prisoners and we were all dressed in green and they'd be chanting like they'd be so like kind of spiritual songs and and you see these like i mean i guess it was like a 19th century british built prison you know for Rhodesia, and these big gates that would clang and i'd be always saying to, to julian like there's a beautiful Beautiful photo there. Beautiful. Just look at that. Yeah. You know, and he had no camera, and he's like, no camera. Yeah. He's yep. like, Fuck you. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, but anyway, I guess it came back to uh, bite me because obviously he had no, you know, he he hadn't taken any pictures, and then I had to just like lock myself away for a few hours and write this piece. And the headline yeah. I remember was "Goodbye, Mister Mugabe." And so yeah, I had to I had to write it, and then I had to write next week, the following week as well. You know.
0: And what are uh, what, what's the word count on those? Do you have a, a word count for something like that? That I was, think in terms of word counts now. Yeah, me too. Especially because I'm finishing up my That was book. long.
1: I mean, I'm thinking that was probably three and a half thousand words. So okay. it was kind of a lot of words. And I guess, you know, you can compose. The, I had, you know, pretty quickly I was composing the start of it, but, you know, I still had to, you know, write this whole thing. Um, and it was pressure. But, you know, I mean, if you're news journalist, you like pressure. I mean, That's I've it. been through 9-11. That was yeah, yeah. the depth talk about deadline pressure with that. So sometimes you do your, you know, sometimes you do your best work actually when you're under a pressure of a deadline like that.
0: I'm trying to get away from that because uh, I find that is true. I do my best work when I'm under pressure for, for deadlines, but, uh, but that also means (laughs) I'm, self-imposing stress, uh, cause I have a full year to write these novels and I'm self-imposing stress by uh, being like, ah, I'm gonna think that through a got plenty of time. And then when it gets down to it, it's like, but that's often the best, uh, the best yeah. work for, for whatever reason. But, I don't know what the psychology behind that is.
1: Right. But what I found though, you know, with experience over the years is it's great to write quickly under that sort of pressure, but the more you can go back and polish and Mm -hmm. and rewrite. And so even even as a news journalist, if I had the opportunity of of like writing under a lot of pressure late at night, I'm a a late night person. So, you know, write till 2 a.m. But you don't have to file it till 10 a.m. You know, crash, wake up at like seven. And so your brain while you've been sleeping is kind of Mm. turning things over. And then I could immediately do a quick rewrite and edit and it will be significantly better. Yeah. So, but the, but the crashing for the deadline and then just filing it. I mean, obviously you have to do that often, Sometimes. but yeah.
0: not ideal. Interesting. What do you think about, have you ever thought about going back and taking some of your, I don't know, favorite pieces or most impactful pieces and putting them together in some sort of a, a collection, uh, like that? Or can you do that? How's it work when I, you uh, work for multiple newspapers and you're I writing? I think for You them can do that.
1: that. You can do that. Um, but I don't see many books like that these yeah. days. I mean, that used to be a thing, uh-huh. um, you know, and I think collections of I mean, it's all it's all online, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm
0: just a yeah. book person. So I like I, you can't see it, but I have this full on library here in front of me. Uh, books are stacked everywhere. Uh, and it's my own kind of uh, uh, organizational uh Way I have everything lined up here, but uh, but I kind of like that being able to visually see it and being like, yeah, oh, okay, I can go over there and pull it off and be like, ah, oh, there it was, oh, just I'm like a, this. You know, I pulled the hell out of this for a long. Oh, time. Oh yeah, I'm a huge uh,
1: like hard, you know, actually hardbacks. I would go to extreme lengths to get hardbacks rather than paperbacks. But yeah, I was just I'm, thinking
0: that too when I found this. I was like, oh, I gotta get this in hardcover. So it's so, uh, it's on my list of things to do in the new year.
1: The hardcover goes for about three hundred dollars because there was, and I've got a couple of them because it was. The only, it was a paperback, it was trade paperback. Okay. And then mass market paperback, which is that mm-hmm. a year later. And the only hardbacks were for like a military book club in the UK. So it's a oh, very, nice. very sort of uh, small print run. Yeah. So they're very rare.
0: Ah, I'm, well, that makes me want it even more. So I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to track one down for sure. That's awesome. And then, uh, so as you're doing all this, do you, uh, when, do, do you know when you go to Afghanistan that you're going to, a book's going to come out of it or how does it, uh, how does that transpire? So,
1: so, I, so I guess after the Zimbabwe experience. So this is in like two thousand and five. So yeah. I sit, sitting in, you know, a jail cell with Julian, you know, and we're chained to each other by the wrist and by the ankles, you know. And Julian just separated from his wife, and and he's was he was a little bit older than me. Um, and actually, another joke was for some reason they got our ages wrong in the, all the newspaper coverage, and they'd always make him a little bit older and me a little bit younger. (laughs) That's funny. Nice. (laughs) And I remember him saying, oh God, you know, my life's a mess, you know, just splitting up for my wife, you know, what's going to happen with the kids and all that stuff. And
0: now he's chained to you going to the bathroom in a prison (laughs) in Zimbabwe. Right. Yeah.
1: But Uh I said to him, and I remember feeling this like, well, at least you've got a life. I, I don't know. I'm just about to turn 40. I'm single, no girlfriend. Um, you know, Uh, So, you know, you do reflect on, you have a lot of hours in there, you know, Mm -hmm. to reflect and talk and stuff. And so I think that kind of played into a sort of sense of my life's a little bit crazy right now. I mean, even this job of, of being in London, going to a different country nearly every week. And so Mm -hmm. you could never plan anything, you know, you couldn't plan for a concert or a dinner or anything, because you might not be there. Mm -hmm. But often you were there. And because you couldn't plan for anything, you hadn't planned anything and there was nothing to do. So, <laughs> you know, and so I think that, you know, that kind of led to, uh, you know, I met an American woman and uh, we got married very quickly in 2006. And um, we, and so she was working in DC. And so I actually left, the I left the staff of the paper Become a stringer. So basically ended up doing kind of the same amount of work for half the pay.
0: But that that's got, a stringer. What does st- that mean? A
1: stringer is like a contract, uh, like a contract employee. So you okay. usually get a retainer, uh, like a monthly retainer for being there. And then, and then you get extra money for whatever is published. And uh, so, okay. but you don't have health insurance. Uh, mm-hmm. You get paid significantly less. And, you know, you're not on the stuff, you know, just sort of like a, know, contract employee. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, that got me back in into uh, into the US, which is what you know we decided to do Um, on the Sunday Telegraph. But then I got, you know, I got brought back in onto the Daily Telegraph as the US editor, so kind of a bigger job, and I was back on the staff. So, um, but I'm covering US US politics, and this is 2006, and so you know, I cover. Obama campaign, I was flying all around, you know, on the plane with Obama and, you know, so in terms of American politics, this is sort of as good as you get, you know, uh, you know, my daughter was born in 2007. So I'm doing the sort of the family uh, thing, but, you know, I still have, obviously, you won't be surprised to hear, I still have this, you know, bug, you know, in me and this urge. And I'd been to Afghanistan in 2006 uh and you know uh, falling in love with the place would be an overstatement but you know it's a beguiling place so yeah. you know, oh yeah you know it, beauty there it Incredible. sucks you in it's beautiful you know people are so engaging and and you know it's just like another world you know yeah and um so i certainly you know was very sort of keen to get back there and then so 2009 Actually, funnily enough, I was with Julian again, a photographer. I mean, um, it's I guess that friendship could have gone either way. Like we absolutely hate each other or we come closer, <laughs> you know, after that jail yeah. experience. But we were doing a trip across uh, in fact, we were doing a trip down the Mississippi. We were driving down the Mississippi mm-hmm. and stopping in, doing different stories in in different places and mm-hmm. kind of a taking the pulse of America type thing. We did, mm-hmm. we did two or three of those. And um, you know, I just turn on the uh, you know, laptop in the evening and it's, you know, you know, Colonel Rupert Thornlow killed in action. You know, So my friend Rupert, who I'd known from Northern Ireland, who by that time was the commanding officer of the Welsh Guards, battalion commander, was killed by an IED, J- July the 1st, 2009. And uh, it was a big news story. He was, he was the first uh, battalion commander to be killed in action since the Falklands War. Uh, They'd also lost a platoon commander and a company commander. And it was the first time since the Korean war that um, officers at those three leadership levels from the same battalion had been killed. Um, It was the height of the British casualties, 10,000 British troops in Helmand. uh, It's the height of the casualties. It was very political, uh, big, you know, sort of political news story. Um, And so I felt... You know, I had connections with the regiment. I'd sort of been embedded with, you know, got to know them in Northern Ireland, been embedded with them in Alamara uh, in Iraq. So I, I knew a number of them. And uh, so I sort of thought I should get out there, you know, and this is a book, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the story is. I just mm-hmm. know the facts, but, you know, the, you know, the the casualties they've taken and the commanding officer being killed, but this is, this is going to be, this this is going to be a book. This could be a book, should be a book. And so, um, you know, I, I got the sort of buy-in from the regiment and then I had to deal with the ministry of defense, which, you know, is pretty brutal. I had to sign a contract that was like nearly an inch thick. I had yeah. to agree to give them the manuscript, um, mm. for sort of for vetting for, uh, they said accuracy and security considerations, yes, which of, of course, Pretty elastic terms.
0: <laughs> and, Brad by design, is what right. I like to say.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I remember signing the con I remember signing the contract and thinking, Ugh, I don't feel good about this, but I just mm. need to get out there. I can worry about yeah. worry about that later on. And so I, I went out there, I was out there for nearly a month, um, the sort of final month of their tour. And uh, you know, which was fantastic because I was able to, you know, interview everybody sort of in situ go to all the places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I couldn't have done it without going there. I mean, there was a suggestion that that I could just interview them all when they got back and I no way would I've done that. Yeah. Um, and so there was one part. So actually I, I got the, I wrote the proposal after I got back, you okay. know, so it's a little bit of a leap of faith, um, going out there without any contract, but it was the right thing to do. And I was sure that it was, you know, mm-hmm. there was going to be a book there. Um, and there was one publisher that wanted an almost instant book, just write it straight away. Mm. And I decided not to do that. And I'm really glad that I didn't because, you know, I then had, I forget how long it was, maybe a year or so, probably a bit less, um, interviewing, um, but, you know, back in, uh, in the UK and it, it, you know, it was a good story at the beginning of, of sort of heroism and, you know, sort of carnage, you know, but, ended up, it turned, people started reflecting. And so people started opening up on a sort of a deeper level. And the, and there was, people started saying like, well, what the, you know, what the hell were we there for? What were we doing? Like what was, you know, yeah, we, you know, went on this operation and I guess we killed the Taliban, but what did it achieve? Because I heard from the next guys, the Taliban were back there, you know, three months later. So and then I got given a lot of documents, uh, like thousands of documents, which included all the sort of intell- daily intelligence summaries, mm. all the incident reports, all the friendly fire incidents, all the civilian mm. casualty. And since all Rupert's correspondence with the brigade and, mm. and some of his emails and stuff home. And so Rupert very courageously, because he was on the fast track, um, had been saying like, I don't have enough men for what you want me to do. And by the way, I don't think that this, you know, Operation Panther's Claw, I think it's flawed. I think it's, you know, it's not going to achieve the objectives. Um, and, you know, the equipment we have is just, you know, is it is inadequate. Uh, you know, we don't have enough armored vehicles. Um, the counter ID uh, equipment, We uh, you know, we're, we're, we've got low metal content IEDs and mm-hmm. we're trying to find them with metal detectors, which is kind of like mm-hmm. prodding a, like a golf club, you know, in the, and, and so, you know, these young wash guardsmen were like vomiting before patrols. And I mean, they're all like kind of catatonic, you know, frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was discovering all this. And uh, so it became, it became this, the story of, you know, heroism and the sort of, the grim reality of war, and obviously, yeah. you know, cowardice and mistakes and all it, which is the, you know, the, always the flip side of, of heroism, and you can't have sort of one thing without the other. But it also became a story about, you know, what happens uh, if you underquip and underman a war and don't have a sort of coherent plan. And that ultimately led to problems when the manuscript went in. <laughs> Because the Ministry of Defence really is reading this, and you know the manuscript goes in, and it goes to, you know, dozens of departments. The way the military is, is, the big manuscript lands on your desk, and you ask for comment. You comment. You try and change things. You say this is this is wrong. You know, you know this is uh, breaches. You know, opsec. And so I then had this like brutal sort of battle. Like there were five hundred changes they wanted. I like whittle them down and then we eventually we we sort of got across the finish line and then they changed their minds and then they and we printed the book the books in the warehouse and they then turned around and said uh he said they said well you include details about the Estonian army and the Estonian government says you can't publish that and that's going to you know um uh endanger our sort of diplomatic relations with Estonia. Uh, So you have to you have to take it out. Well, that's nothing to do with me. And by the way, all that information was from the Estonians that I went to see when I was in Helmand. And but you know, they did there was something, I guess it's it's a former Soviet, you know, state. And so, you know, they didn't like any details of casualties, you know. And I'm kind of like, Uh. well, what do you think happens to a guy who gets hit by an RPG? You know? I mean, so, oh, okay. That's so
0: interesting. Cause the same thing happened. Soviets in Afghanistan, obviously those black tulip yeah. flights would leave and they would land and there would be dead bodies. And the the mothers and fathers were not allowed to talk about where their, their, uh, son was killed. Um, they couldn't put it on the gravestone. It was just a birthday and a, uh, and, a and a, and a, date of death on there, not Afghanistan, no medals, none of that sort of thing. It was just, so it's, it's interesting that, uh, still all these years later, yeah. that, uh, former, uh Soviet republic or satellite state or, is doing that same sort of thing all of these years later. Amazing.
1: Yeah, and there were a couple of there were a couple of Estonian soldiers. I tried very hard to meet them, but I couldn't. Who had fought for the Soviet forces in Afghanistan? Wow, in the nineteen eighties, that That's would have been wild. That would be pretty incredible. cool. Yeah, yeah, that would have been incredible Jeez. to me there. Um, so that these yeah, what are those guys thinking? I know exactly. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> I'm
0: going to try to track those guys down. That's fascinating. Right here, I
1: know. Uh, Maybe they're contractors now or something. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as well as, of course, you know, the people I did meet was like, you know, I remember the caretaker, this place called uh, Chari uh, Angier, I think it was called. Um, And there was this caretaker who'd been, you know, caretaker for the the Mujahideen, you know, caretaker for the Soviets, caretaker for the Taliban, caretaker for the Americans, caretaker for the Brits. Yes, he's a caretaker for the Taliban again, if he's still alive. <laughs> you know, he's just like, wow. I'm, yeah. just doing my th- I'm just doing my thing. Amazing. Um, so that was the first thing they, and I'm, you know, and I and the publisher have been like, well, that's bullshit, you know, yeah. Estonia, nothing to do with us. But then they, then they said, oh, you know, you've identified a member of special forces. Uh, and that was sort of more difficult. I mean, I hadn't.
0: And after they've already seen it and approved well,
1: it. So, yeah. So there's the specific argument. I, I was like, well, I haven't any more. I mean, this is a person that was is you know is in newspaper cuttings as having worked for JSOC General mm-hmm. Crystal in Iraq, and he was awarded a Distinguished uh, Service Order. Uh, and the Welsh Guards were not in Iraq at the time, and so it's pretty clear that he was Special Forces. And everyone knows that. And that's kind of his identity. And anyway, I don't say it. I mean, I guess the suggestions that he's done some Mm. interesting stuff. Um, But the trouble is, you know, when you get hit with that, and if they start talking about that publicly, you know, most people aren't going to know the details. And it's, you know, you're up against the Ministry of Defense. And, you know, I want to, you know, I want to cover the military. I don't want to be accused of, you know, endangering lives. So it was, problematic. Um, and, but so what we, what we ended up with is they, they were saying, well, we, you know, we don't think you have, we we have done anything wrong here, but, um, you know, you passed the book for, you said it was okay. And there was, there was a tense moment when the publisher said to me, Toby, could you just send us the email where they, they cleared the book for publication. And I was like, Oh, do I have that, or was it just, you know, on the phone? And so, anyway, I searched my emails, and there was just a. It was just kind of logistics email, but it's like, could you, when you can, could you get some, um, some copies of the book biked over to, to the MOD because you know we'd be we'd be keen to see them. And so that was the email. Oh, geez. So I said to the publisher, "Yeah, this is it," and they're like, "Okay, we're good." So, thankfully, that was there. But you know, so it's like lawyers. Uh, I mean, it was. The middle of the night. It was like two o'clock in the morning. And it was like, I was with the publisher's lawyers, who was the treasury solicitor s- sort of stuff, like the MOD lawyers on the other end of the phone. And they agreed to buy the first print run, which I think was 20,000 copies or something, um, uh, for an agreed price uh, per unit. So, per, I mean, they got a big bulk discount, but they bought the first print run and then they pulped them. They, wow. And, you know, we, you know, it's a little bit of kind of judo involved, like we use their momentum and, you know, to your own advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that this was good publicity. Right. Um, and uh, and so they were trying to get a non-disclosure and we were saying, like, no, we can't do that because there's shareholders and, you know, it's uh-huh. public money. And um, so they, they kind of caved on that. And so they spent 150,000 pounds, I think it was on this first print run of books. Wow. Um, and then we made a few little changes. Like we took out, you know, the effect of the RPG on the Est- Estonian soldier and a couple yeah. other things. And then we and then we reprinted it. Um, wow. But yeah, it was kind of a, a wild ride.
0: Jeez, how long, what, what is that process from when you first submitted that manuscript to them until this uh, publication or the second
1: publication, I so guess? It'd have, how long was that? So it would have to, so the book was published in March, 2011. I think it was due for publication a couple of months earlier. And so the tour ended in like November, 2009. So I must have submitted the manuscript about September. So it was, you know, it was two or three months of wrangling.
0: That's actually pretty efficient, Uh, (laughs) having gone through our process here, uh, which is pretty wild but uh, for my first uh, first three and uh, now I'm so far removed from anything like all the research I'm doing is is uh, just that research you know it's not from my time in the military but those first ones I was still still close and there was all the uh, you know recent controversy of other books that hadn't been cleared and even though mine's fiction and all made up I still submitted it but yeah man that was crazy we had to delay publication also because they couldn't get around to reading it which is not yeah. a big surprise because I guess they're not big readers over there at the Pentagon um, which the t- last 20 years should not shock uh, should not shock anyone if they saw how we left uh, left Afghanistan. When it comes to understanding the nature of the conflict in which we're we're engaged, um, so what? So between the publication of this book then and the publication of, of First Casualty, we have a decade now. What are you? What are you doing for <laughs> know, this? Uh, for this up decade, right?
1: I mean, a decade between books. That's that's not going to work. And so, yeah. so yeah, I'm working on a proposal now, and yeah, I really, you know, I, I really want to. Otherwise, I'm get, probably like two more books left in me. Kind of. <laughs> um, uh, well, they're so,
0: fantastic. I mean, you're an incredible, incredible writer. So I hope you do write uh, write more. But what are you doing? What is what is this ne- this decade? Uh, so you my doing for this decade.
1: So, uh, so my day. Yeah. So I was still with the Telegraph in 2011. I left at the end of 2011. Uh, I worked for Mail Online briefly for a year. Okay. Uh, How was that? Pub- it was kind of crazy. I mean, yeah? it was just like. I was filing like five, six news stories a day. They want There's, to be. They're
0: on, the, on it. The Mail yeah. Online is on it. Like they, they were relentless. They are quick. Like they, they usually have things faster than. You know, I'm not. These days, my research and everything that I'm doing isn't. Uh, uh, you know, it's kind of I'm taking a breath and kind of deep, going deep into things. So I'm not always on my on my phone just looking. But when I do get on there for um, for things that are very very current or uh, happening, emerging. Mail online is on it. They are quick. Yeah. They're the fastest ones that I know of, anyway. That I have on my on yeah. my phone.
1: Yeah. So I was so this was covering the 2012 election. So yeah, Romney against Obama winning re-election. Um, and so, I, you know, I've been at the Telegraph for a long time, and so uh, I sort of felt like it was good to have it'd be good to have a move because you know oh. also I jo- you know I j- I joined there very junior, and so this happens sometimes. So, you know, a lot of people who were still there when I started just viewed me as this junior guy kind of thing, you know, uh. you know, and so, you know, I felt that, and, you know, people sort of advised me that, you know, um, you know, sometimes to get ahead, uh, a move is good and mm. that actually turned out to be the case. Mm. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, the next person that sort of makes an offer or whatever, I'll, I'll go. And it was the male. And I remember thinking, mm, this, I don't think this is sort of ideal. But you know, I need a move, and so I went there. And I was told I'm, you know, I'd be doing big, you know, ana- analysis pieces. I'd have a column, a long reads, and everything. And no, I mean, basically, when I got there, it was like, you know, very soon it was like, you know, five stories a day. You know, and wow. And they want like, out. what do
0: they want? Like eight hundred words or something like that? What oh, they-,
1: they go long, but they also copy bits of other stories, and so it's just slap it in there. Okay. Um, they want to be on the drudge report like all the time, uh-huh. and I remember, um, you know, high impact, you know, yeah, quick. Um,
0: you can tell by looking at it that it's they're they're on it, like they're not. It's a good model. Yeah. I mean,
1: it was at the time, I don't know if it, maybe the New York Times is bigger now or it was back to being bigger, but it was the world that their sort of claim was that it was the world's most read newspaper website, and the traffic was sort of huge, yeah, no paywalls or anything. Um, but you know, it was relentless. And I remember, you know, covering (laughs) the democratic convention in Denver. Yeah. Denver. Um, and I think it was, was yeah, I I think so. Oh no, maybe it was, maybe it was Charlotte, Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyway, I think I was in, I think I was in Charlotte and I remember, you know, I had the banner thing on the drudge. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was, I just, I'd got up at like, 6.30 Six thirty or something, I was still sitting there at two o'clock in the afternoon in my box of shorts, just having finished my fourth story, and I was saying to them, I need to get to the convention,
0: you know, yeah.
1: like Michelle Obama's speaking, I need you know I need to do this, and they're like, yeah, but we just need one I remember saying, oh, i can't I can't do this yeah and then and then the phone rings, and it's the sunday times uh, you know an executive from Sunday Times saying you know oh, you're doing really well at the mail you know uh, i'm sure you're very happy there um and you wouldn't be interested but you know we we're looking for a new washington correspondent and and so of course i was like well wow, the mail's great you know i really am loving it and it's just you know but you know yes. what are you thinking <laughs> you know <laughs> and so um you know the sunday times was longer reads um mm-hmm. you know more it's a broadsheet it's more cerebral and you get mm-hmm. sort of more time and uh uh so I ended up moving there, which was great. And so I spent, uh, I ended up spending like six six years there covering wow. U.S. politics, you know, right up yeah. to I guess Trump, you know, and yeah, I guess I left in twenty eighteen. Okay,
0: okay. So you had a good run with that. I wonder if Daily Mail burned people out because that that pace seems unsustainable to uh, to do three, four, five a day. Um, yeah. For I mean, because you have to sit there, and you you can't really be out and do five a day if you're going out talking to people right. and you know getting all that sort of thing putting boots on the ground um, i wonder if they burn people out if they if that model that you kind of went through from one one pay, one organization to them for a certain amount of time and then moving on to something that yeah. allows you to think stories through a little more at a different pace i wonder if they uh you know how long they can keep people doing that
1: yeah i mean it was it's sort of in britain you know it's Daily Mail is a huge like phenomenon in Britain and the website is sort of its own phenomenon. Mm. Uh, but it's sort of highly, it's sort of vilified in Mm. you know, in many ways as often successful organizations are. Um, but it's also sort of feared and admired and within the industry, there was a sense of, I know that, I know that pretty sure anyway, that the Sunday times wouldn't have come in for me if I, if I was in my 18th year at the Telegraph. But as somebody it. who'd been at the Telegraph and established themselves, and was then surviving and, you know, from mm-hmm. the outside thriving, I guess at the Mail, yep. that, that gave me something. That gave me something extra. Like you must, you know, I think there's a sort of sense you must be tough, yeah, to to sort of endure that sort yeah. of the the work ethic and the sort of indignities of it and stuff. <laughs> I um, right. So I can um, see that from
0: the outside looking in. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. So that led to the Sunday Times, and you know that was great but you know having i you know said earlier that i didn't i never felt i was never in love with american politics mm-hmm. and, and in fact in some ways i hate it you know yeah. <laughs> and particularly sort of in recent years yeah um and so you know my heart was always in sort of war terrorism and mm-hmm. you know the dark underbelly of you know all that sort of stuff um but you know I had kids you know was established here Um, you know, by that point divorced, you know, so I have to be here for my kid, you know, you know, join custody with my kids. So, you know, I can't move anywhere and, you know, I need money and, um, as everybody does. And so, you know, I just fell back into doing, you know, American politics, which, you know, at that point I could do not with my eyes closed, but, you know, it was well within my comfort zone at that point. You know, I can do it. I know that I can cover a presidential campaign pretty well. Um, but, you know, my heart still lies in, in some of the up, some of this, uh, other stuff. And, you know, uh, it's funny cause I started in journalism in 1994 and I remember people saying it's not like it used to be, you know, of course. <laughs> and, and so there's always been the sense of, you know, it's more than a sense. Cause there's, you know, statistics, you know, that underline this, you know, it's a declining industry. And you know, I've I've certainly embraced online and everything early, Um, but you know, I mean, actually, I look back at you know the the mid '90s as the heyday. I mean, it was for me and sort of downhill ever since. So Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, sustain that forever. Um, And uh, you know, I I wanted to write books. You know, you know, I've had ideas and sort of false starts along the way. And in fact, what became First Casualty. Um, I first kind of floated and started getting really interested in, in 2013. Mm. And, um, you know, you've got to, you've got to also, I was always, uh, you know, afraid of getting recalled to London because mm. I was technically a London based correspondent, even though, you know, I've been in the U S since 2006 and, right. and I could, cause of my kids, I couldn't leave. And. On some level, they must've known that. So I was very vulnerable to being like, oh, why didn't you come back to London uh, to be the foreign editor? And I would right. have said, sorry. And they'd just said, okay. And then I'd be, you know. Right. So um anyway, so that led to the sort of the plunge out of, you know, being a foreign correspondent and, you know, into this book, uh which, you know, has been a sort of a, a magnificent sort of project to, to get into. And, and I, and I hope will lead to, you know, more of the same.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you're certainly in a, in a good spot physically, uh, location wise to, to be writing about, about these things with people that have, were involved right in the, the days leading up to during and after nine 11, obviously. And then it came out obviously to very fortuitous Time in history with us leaving Afghanistan um, in in August and and how that that all played out. But um, so you started thinking about this or writing the proposal or uh, in in 2013. What, um, what 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 kind of led to that? Why did you in 2013 decide to go back to 2001? Uh, the lead up, all the characters because it's a character-driven story, yes, very um, much, which very, is what uh, what stood out to me. It's not just like. Yeah. X, Y, and Z, this happened, then this happened, there was this right. firefight, there was this prison uprising, you know, and here we are at, uh, 20 years later.
1: No, yeah, it, yeah. it's
0: about the characters and the people. And that's what makes this thing stand out. And that's what makes yeah. it so powerful, is that yeah. you feel like you know these people, that you've maybe heard, heard, seen some of the names in newspaper articles, and now it's been 20 years, maybe since you've seen some of those names in uh, in, in print. Um, but you kind of have a connection to it because of that, because we have the shared experience of 9-11 and the shared experience of going into Afghanistan and this kind of this new model when we're looking at, at terrorism International terrorism, anyway. Um, so, so it's a very character-driven piece, which is which is incredible. But um, in 2013, what what was it that made you think, "Hey, I'm going to write this"? And then, why did it take from 2013 to 2021? <laughs> yeah, life uh, gets for, complicated. For you do it?
1: <laughs> so, you know, it goes right back to 9/11. So, it's very much a 9/11 book, as you say. You know, it's uh, it's centered on these eight characters, the eight members of Team Alpha, one of them being Mike Spann, and and that's the kind of like the line right the way through. And I tried very hard not to go off on too many tangents, which meant, you know, cutting material out and saying, well, that's a great story. But, you know, how does that sort of adhere to the central narrative, which, as you say, is rooted very much in the context of, of 9-11 and D.C. and CIA quarters and the Pentagon mm-hmm. and the White House and Bush and all and all that. Um, but I think. You know, I, I wrote a couple of news stories about um, Mike Spann in, in 2001, and I remember his death, you know, and remember sort of, the, you know, the like the New York Post cover, like Hero. And, you know, I remember Shannon Spann, who I've got to know quite well, you know, uh, in the last year or two, um, giving this just beautiful, you know, incredibly poignant, graceful eulogy at Arlington. Um, when Mike was buried on December the 10th, 2001. And I remember, like, being fascinated by this and actually trying to persuade the newspapers to, ha- to have me interview Shannon Spann. And they were like, no, you know, it's all about Iraq now and if Afghanistan's over. And, you know, every, sort of the circus moved on. But it never left me. And uh, in Iraq, in, in, I think in 2004, somebody said, have you ever seen the footage of that CIA officer in the fort after... Uh, Mike Spam was killed, sort of running for his life, and he's just killed loads of Al-Qaeda guys and he's clutching the rifle, pistol, and, um, and he's in this sort of world of pain. And I hadn't seen it, and I looked at it on YouTube, and um, and it was David Tyson, who is, you know, the central, you know, yeah, you start the central the book figure with him. in the book. Yeah. yeah, and he's he's in the and he's in the center of those three figures on the on the jacket. Um, and it was German TV footage. Um, and he, November 25th, 2001, Mike Spann had just been killed. David had fought his way out of the Southern compound. I now know killed two dozen, three dozen, I don't know, Al Qaeda at very, very close quarters. And he was running to the Northern side of the fort. Um, he was clutching Mike's AKMS and he was, and his pit, um, Browning high power pistol completely out of ammunition and presumably these weapons were hot as well because he's clutching them in this sort of weird way and he and he sort of bursts into the headquarters building and sort of bumps into a German tv crew who's filming and is questioned by this German journalist Arnhem Stout about what's going on and David you can see his staring eyes like about a thousand yard yard stare and I remember looking at looking at his face and those eyes and thinking What's he going through? He doesn't know whether he's going to live, you know, for another five minutes because they were still under attack was still extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, whether he's, it's going to be a few hours, he's just seen his comrade killed. He's just killed people at very close quarters. Um, and so I was fascinated by him and I guess, you know, I mean, 2013, um, I'm back at the sun, you know, I'm at the sunny times I'm covering us politics. Um, and so I decided to just track him down, you know? And um, there was an academic at Indiana University who thanked him in sort of acknowledgments to a book and I emailed him mm-hmm. and he emailed Gotta David. be careful of
0: those acknowledgments.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's all other, uh, right. And um, yeah, book acknowledgments can be very interesting. Very telling, interesting, actually. Yeah. uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I remember I was covering Chris Christie's re-election as New Jersey governor. And not enjoying it. I mean, he was being extremely un- <laughs> he was being extremely unpleasant to me personally, and to my project, which was to interview him and cover him. He didn't want this British journalist asking him difficult questions. He just wanted to rack up the points for re-election, so you know he could run for president. And uh, yeah, I remember feeling like this is just you know this is pretty grim. This story, <laughs> I and this, can see that, and this candidate. And, um, and the phone rings and it's like, Hey, it's David Tyson. And so I met David, uh, in a Panera bread in Virginia, Vienna, Virginia. So he's I living, I think
0: I've been to that one,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a good anonymous kind of uh-huh. spot and you know, you're sort of hiding in plain sight <laughs> when with- I was on
0: my way to the CIA. It's pretty right. funny. So, but
1: I mean, you know, meetings <laughs> like that are often in these generic places. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, uh, he was, uh, yeah, so he was working at CIA headquarters and, but, you know, it's sort of amazing in a way, because, you know, all this had happened in Afghanistan. I would first got interested in, in Iraq and here's this guy just living at the, the next sort of town down wow. route 123. Um, but, you know, he was very friendly, um, and sort of cordial, but, you know, he couldn't really speak very much, mm. uh, but I, I got this sense from him. That he wanted to, you know, tell a story um, in in some form at some point, and he said, you know, I, you know, I can't really speak. Um, I don't know when I'm re- I'm going to retire, but you know, let's keep in touch. And so we did. Um, I thought about doing the book sort of without him. Or, you know, I guess I was maybe hoping that he would talk to me anyway, yeah. in a sort of off the record type of thing. Um, and I initially envisaged this book as much more about, you know, the Battle of Kalajangi. So from November 25th, sort of 400 Al-Qaeda prisoners rise up, kill Mike's Span. Then there's six days, um, you know, it's a friendly fire, J-Dam on the 26th of November. There's an SBS, eight men of the SBS. Uh SBS there, including one Navy SEAL, step Bass, Bass. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um this AC 130s, this General Dustom, there's John Walker Lynn, the American Taliban. So I was thinking it a bit as those the story of those six days. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, there's Green Berets who were talking. Uh, you know, there's a you know, I could have done a decent job in 2013, mm-hmm. 2014. Um, but you know, other stuff was going on. Um at that point I had, I only had an agent in the UK. It was a very American book. Mm -hmm. And so it just got put, it got put to one side. Got And, and I'm, you know, I feel that so many things like this work out for the best because I think now was the right time. And so in, uh, you know, late, I guess late 2019, you know, I, I want to do a book. Um, And 20th anniversary of 9-11 coming up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, you know, did the proposal, which was, you know, a a little bit of a wing and a prayer because, you know, I'd spoken to Mark Mitchell, who was the Green Beret um, who led the 15-man rescue force that went into the fort. Um, I'd spoken to, you know, a couple of other people. Uh, I had, you know, pretty good hopes of speaking to uh, at least some of the SBS mm. um, and, you know, pe- people like Cover Black and Hank Crumpton were sort of, pub, you know, public. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I was pretty sure I could do it, but, you know, I hadn't spoken to any of the CIA people yet and I didn't know whether de- I hoped and, you know, on balance, believed that David Tyson would talk to me, but I couldn't be sure. Mm. Um, but I got the deal and, uh, and then sort of early, I guess, January, February, 2020. Uh, so only just a little, you know, beginning of last year. Um, David uh, just shoots me an email and said, Hey, you know, remember me? <laughs> um, but he knew I remembered him because I'd emailed him and said, I've got a book deal. I want to talk. And he says, I've retired. He says, I'm ready to talk. Wow. And so I'm not very religious, but I was like, Oh, there is a God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And so So, you know, I spoke to David, and then I just went from person to person. So J.R. Seeger, who's the chief of Team Alpha Diary speaking case officer who worked with the Mujahideen in the 80s, you know, he's been out a long time and writes thrillers. um, And so I went to see him. Uh, Justin Sapp, who's Colonel Green Beret, still serving. Okay, Uh, He was a captain, the only Green Beret on on Team Alpha, Mm -hmm. you know, hit, hit him up on LinkedIn. Oh no and, way. Uh, yeah. Wow. And you know, I went to meet he's now based at the US mission to the to the UN. Um, I love how you
0: introduced these guys, by the way, too. Like he's but he, he's he's scuba diving or something with his with yeah. his team and going over there on 9-11. And and I love how you talk about David Tyson because he's in he's in Teshcan at some point, uh right there in the beginning. And I spent some time there, uh not too long after 9-11, not quite a year after 9 11 spent some time there. Um, working out of some houses there, but then going out to the country to help train up some snipers um, out there um, in Uzbekistan, which was a really interesting interesting time uh, to be there. And then I saw K2 in there. When you brought back all these memories when I yeah. when I read this because I'm seeing K2 and I haven't thought of K2, which was an airfield in Uzbekistan you talk about here. And I remember being there in 2003 yeah. uh, to go into Afghanistan and, and all that sort of thing and the way you describe it. And I hadn't really thought about that in a, in a long time. So I love the way you introduce all these guys to include the more strategic level figures like Grover Black and then yeah. uh, you weave weave a little bit of Donald Rumsfeld in there and what the yeah, military yeah. is thinking and and all that so it all comes together in a, and but what was also stood out to me is that all these different characters could be 100% their own books um, could, yeah. warlords in Afghanistan the Massoud in the assassination and how and how that happens Dodson, like all these different characters on both sides some in the middle um have their own Book their own stories, and yeah. you touch on them in such a, an appropriate way in here. But uh, but that was my sense. So it's interesting to hear you say that you had to cut yeah. a lot out because uh, I can see that all of these different personalities um, have this have huge stories to tell that yeah. could be con- totally investigated and and written about in a fascinating
1: way. I mean, there's a guy called Charlie Santos in there who's this American um, who gets interested in Afghanistan because he's got a job at a car dealership, and there's an Afghan. Um, Emigre, who's there. And so he's, he starts working for an oil company. He's just like this sort of entrepreneur, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, then he he's, he works at the UN and he gets to know uh, Dostum and and Moa Keck and Ahmed Shamsud and all these guys in the 1990s when the CIA isn't there and isn't paying attention. And then after 9-11, everybody's, Dostum's calling up Charlie Santos. You know, he's just this guy. You know, and he's just an amazing character. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so, so yes, I mean, I vividly remember meeting Justin, you know, outside like a coffee shop in New Jersey. Mm. Uh, and you know, you never know. It's the first time I've met him and you know, we've got like, I don't know, an hour or something. And I'm like, you know, it may take a bit longer than that.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, <laughs> and and he immediately starts launching into, yeah, on 9-11. And as soon as he said this, I'm like, you know, so I already knew that David Tyson on 9-11, he took, he took off from Tashkent just as Muhammad Atta was getting on a what a flight 11 from Boston from Boston, Boston. Right. So it's almost exactly the same moment. And I kind of, you know, I worked out the time of takeoff and looked at the 9-11 yeah. report and all the timings, and it was just sort of uncanny. So he was taking off just as Muhammad Atta was boarding, and then David doesn't get to Heathrow seven or eight hours later. It's all over, you know. And he arrives at Heathrow, and he can see see people clustered around TV screens. It's like, what's going on? And he's going to the CIA station in London to talk about talk about Afghanistan, right? Stinger missiles and recovering them.
0: Stinger missiles. I know. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, he's the Afghan guy. In Tashkent and he's been going to Tajikistan and down to the border and getting stick buying stingers off warlords and stuff. And, and then just a meeting just sitting outside this coffee shop with Justin. He's like, I was actually underwater on nine online. <laughs> I was like, says I how the special forces diver course in Key West. And when the first plane hit, I was, you know, I was doing this, you know, buddy dive mm-hmm. and you know, and we were, you know, we were cleaning our gear. And then somebody said, have you heard about what happened in New York? And so immediately sort of thinking well sort of there's my opening yeah i knew mike span was in headquarters and so you've got a guy in the air a guy underwater and a guy Mm -hmm. you know on on dry land it's just so sort of cinematic yeah and and so you know so i've already spoken to three of the team there's the six still alive because mark Rausenberger, the medic died in the philippines in 2016 um and but I'm already getting this sense of just the richness of the characters and also team Alpha's story, because I knew very little, I knew they'd been in the mountains, but you know, I'm I'm now sort of starting to build up this picture of, you know, they flew in on October 16th, 17th from K2 and all the stuff that happened before Masary Sharif fell on November the 10th. And so it becomes much more of a story about, um, you know, the eight members of team alpha at the center. And of course they have, ODA 595 and then they have other Green Berets coming in and fighting alongside them and they, there's this dostum and then this team Bravo comes in and another ODA. So you have all these other people, but it was those eight guys. And you know, I sort of thought that they were you know param, paramilitary sort of elite warriors, but they they weren't, you know, two were case officers. So David was a former academic, Indiana University Central Asian Studies guy joined the CIA late, been in the military a couple of times, but he was an artilleryman. And then he was sort of ROTC commissioned intelligence officer for a short period just to, you know, pay his way through college. Uh, So he had the least military experience of the eight. J.R. Seeger, case officer, again, diary speaker. Um, He had four paramilitaries, so Alex Hernandez, Sergeant Major, Special Forces, 10th Group, you know, kind of storied career, ended up on a special, special mission unit. Scott Spellmeyer uh, Alex was 49. Wow. Um, uh, Scott Spellmeyer 33 years old, ranger, uh, wounded in the Battle of Mogadishu. Andy, who's still serving, uh, Special Forces Reservist, and Mike Spann, uh, Marine Corps so officer. They're the four paramilitaries. And then you have a medic and, and Justin. But it was kind of a, you know, it was a motley kind of bunch yeah, of Yeah,
0: motley crew, dirty dozen. I love yeah,
1: it. Yeah, very different. Uh, different backgrounds, didn't know each other. I mean, the four paramilitaries did, and they were kind of a paramilitary team before, but all the others were add on. And, you know, they kind of, some of them met at K2, David was based in Tashkent. So he was added they're at there. the end yeah. it was a SEAL, the former SEAL who was swapped out, who went on to team Bravo. And the photo of the eight of them, you know, in their so yeah, cool. RE, REI gear or like- It's so know, fantastic. People, I love the so photos
0: like, in here. They're, they're so yeah. fantastic.
1: Um, there are lots of jokes about it that look like dads on a camping trip and stuff. But I get that no, now
0: when I, when I post something of me from back in those days, from 2003, four, five, six, people start making, you know, make comments because I post some of those photos on uh, on social media. People make make fun of like, hey, you're like Andy from the car rental place or whatever that is, you know, the commercial right. and stuff like that. Like, you know, dad's going to war type thing, you know, <laughs> it's just style yeah, is a little
1: different. So there was no body armor, no helmets. Yep. So they were going to be alongside the indigenous fighters and you don't want to look more protected than them. You didn't want any military kit because what happened if you got, you know, captured? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, this, it's before all this kind of warrior chic kind right. of stuff. It's before like t- sleeve tattoos and yep. cool gear. And, you know, that was all not happening then. Yep. And um, so, yeah, so I mean, you know, at this point, I'm like, yeah, this and this, I mean, I feel that with each book, characters have become more and more Mm -hmm. sort of important and central. Yeah, And, you know, it's a big ask to get people to read a book. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of books out there. Yeah. So many distractions. People's attention spans are shorter. We're all looking at our phones and stuff. And so so to to sort of do a book that's, you know, this is what I think about Afghanistan. I mean, how many of those books are there? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it does tell you a lot about Afghanistan. It does tell you a lot about 9-11 it tells you a lot about why we went in and it tells you a certain amount about, you know, what happened to the, the 20 years since. Cause I was back there a year ago interviewing Dostum and going to Kalajangi oh, wow. and, and, you know, spending time there. And, you know, I wrote, um, uh, I forget what I called it. Did I call it a forward or a preface or, but anyway, this sort of opening kind of scene setter and after the sort of catastrophe of catastrophe of August, I, I went back to it with a thinking like, ooh, you know, and I read it, I was like, this holds up pretty well. Like, it does. This
0: is, I had to look yeah. and see like when you, I tried to figure out when you had to turn it in uh, like because June, I saw that. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, okay. And I was trying to work it out in my, in my head. Uh, Cause you talk about April, uh, some things the president says in April in here. Yes. Uh and then you talk about, so I was seeing just how current it was and uh, man, it's so current. That's why I think like, I hope that there's a, a trade paperback or a mass market. That oh yeah, comes there is. Out. yeah. That, yeah. and we can do like a new forward or a new afterward with a little bit of perspective, um like two pages yeah. or something like that. Um, because, I think the, but but yeah. it, but you don't need it. That's the other part because right because when I went and read it, I'm like, oh, he, he that would be cool just because it has already happened because now we know for sure what happened yeah. in in August. Um, we can point to specifics and we can have that benefit of hindsight and all that stuff. but, uh, but you don't need it. But right. these things did happen afterward. Uh, so to be yeah. able to take a breath and look back on it and just offer some some insights uh, might be might be kind of cool. Um, yeah, because it. And, and then, it then is, the one yeah. thing,
1: I mean, probably what will be an epilogue, I would think, is, um, is Team Alpha and Shannon Span working to get Afghans out, and that's happening, wow. you know, every day now. Okay. And so it's like an it's like a new mission, you know, twenty years afterwards. Jeez, and. And my translator—they helped my translator from a year ago get out. Wow! He's currently at um, at Fort Dix in New Jersey, soon to be in my basement, I think. Wow! (laughs) Um, And so that's been wonderful. Uh, And they've channeled their sort of anger, sadness, frustration about you know the way the war ended, and I guess the whole kind of uh, you know way the war went Mm -hmm. into helping these guys and their families. Uh, who were with them right at the beginning? So, yeah. like people like Commander Fakir, people who he was in command at the at Kalajangi uh, twenty years ago, and his family. You know, he's one of the guys they've been trying to help, and that's been sort of an incredible thing to you know witness and be a little small part of. Um, and so that's really does bring it that really does bring, bring it up full trouble. circle. So, yeah, that
0: would be interesting to uh, to to read that that perspective and just get a little a couple more insights uh after taking a breath after finishing this and then seeing what's transpired and then being involved in in that of course. Um that's that's incredible. So w- when you look back on on all this and having been involved in so much of it from uh from day one from september 11th onward uh being in iraq being in afghanistan looking at it through a uh, from a journalist's perspective from a from a human perspective which obviously comes out in here because it's such a, a character driven story which i think is amazing that really yeah. makes it stand out to me with all the other things that i've that i've read about afghanistan in this time period uh in Thank particular you. But um, when you look back on it now and you see November of 2001, you see December of 2001, um, are there things you think, some missteps there, maybe the the focus on afghanistan uh or sorry on iraq in in mm. december uh, when president bush is getting briefed by tommy franks uh, about the uh the plausibility of being able to run a war on two fronts um, yeah. right as we're losing uh osama bin laden into into pakistan when we have guys on the ground that you talk about in in this book here that are requesting more troops um yeah. and uh and and questioning kind of the loyalties of some of the the forces that we're working with on the ground and is that working is that not um, Hey, we have these forces, uh, general Mattis and all these, can we get Marines in here? Can we yeah. get 10th mountain in here? Can we get someone yeah. in here to put some forces on the ground to maybe block some escape routes? Or when you look back on, on that time frame, and maybe to even include, um, some things going on in Europe, as far as, uh, uh talking, excluding the Taliban from, from talks about what's going to happen in Afghanistan going forward. Um, do you think there's some missteps between uh November and December of 2001, maybe into the spring of 2002, let's say, um, mm-hmm. where we could have done some things differently that would have changed the, the next 20 years
1: and changed what we saw in August of 2021? Yeah, I think undoubtedly. And I was, you know, I, I listened with great interest to your um, podcast with Peter Bergen and, and you touched on many of these things and, mm-hmm. and uh that, that was really useful and, Instructive and one of those podcasts where I wanted to take a few notes. Oh, thank and you. Indeed, I did. You know. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but yes, so one of the sort of tragedies and and ironies of of the success of Team Alpha and the other CI teams and the overall U.S. mission uh, in the fall of two thousand one was that we went in with hundreds of Americans with a you know with a formula which was came from the Blue Sky memo which was a CIA document produced at the end of 2000, which was the plan for small numbers of Americans to go after uh, Al-Qaeda by aligning themselves with the Northern Alliance in Afghanistan. And this was before 9-11, but after the USS Cole, after the embassy bombings, after the Millennium Plot. And so counterterrorism Center, CIA, they've been jumping up and down for, you know, at least a couple of years saying they're coming here. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So CIA wanted to go and do it. The Clinton administration, as you covered with Peter, didn't want to do it. The Bush administration wasn't interested, um, you know, wasn't kind of read in, didn't think it was important. Um, but, you know, on 9-11, Pentagon didn't have a plan, but the, the CIA did. And, you know, plans may be, you know, over-egging it. It was sort of a, but it was a formula, a concept.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But it, it worked. So hundreds of Americans working you know, by with and through, the classic, you know, special forces uh, phrase, you know, the sort of this had its roots sort of in SOE and the OSS, you know, the for you know, the, the forerunner, the OSS being the forerunner of special forces and the CIA, mm-hmm. of, you know, small numbers of Americans working behind uh, enemy lines, you know, deep, you know, deep into dangerous territory with indigenous al- allies as advisors but they're doing the fighting and the, the inv- we're not the invaders the invaders are the arabs of al qaeda and of course you know the, there's the awesome might of uh, us air power above which changes the military equation but putting those things together it it worked in 2001 it worked much much uh, more quickly than anyone expected mm. and so i think that you know that led to i don't know what word you want to use Hubris, you know, overoptimism, arrogance, whatever. But I think all that fed into um, a sense that regime change is easy. So let's go do Iraq, you know. Um, Also, we've won, you know. uh, So we don't need, you know, the Taliban. Their history, they're over. And so, you know, Hamid Karzai, and this is in the in the book, um, was proposing that you know some elements of the Taliban. You know per Afghan tradition um you know are brought to the table and incorporated in the new regime. now a small number um but that's the way to sort of to neutralize them, but instead, Rumsfeld is no, and the Bush administration is with the sore against us, you know, you're either a terrorist or you're a friend, and the Taliban's not a friend, so we're not they lost we're we're not dealing with them and you know again. There's this sort of sense of um so you know they're not at the Bonn uh, agreement, which I think was uh December the 5th. And so yeah. all these things are happening at the same time. So like Mike's band's killed on November 25th, his funeral's on December the 10th, bin Laden escapes from Tora Bora on December the 12th, the um the uh, bond agreement is December the fifth. It's all happening in this, and as you say, and as you discussed with Peter, um Tommy Franks has been told to brief Rumsfeld and the president on Iraq. And so, you know, without oversimplifying things too much, you look at that period, the end of November and the beginning of December 2001, and that's where it starts to go wrong. That's where it starts to shift. And then you've got, you know, big, you know, USA Inc., you know, the Pentagon, conventional forces coming in, bases, you know, supply chains, you know, and then, then we're the the occupiers and we're fixed in place. And then, you know, even though Afghanistan is arguably not a country, it's a collection of ethnicities and tribes, you know, there is a sort of a nationalism, you know, back to South Amar, no one likes to see foreign troops in bases on their, on their soil. And, you know, we decide, again, you know, I've covered the Bush administration. uh, And this idea that democracy and the American way is just the natural state of all human societies, you know? And so it's like, okay, so we've got rid of the Taliban. Let's, you know, let's shoot for the moon. Let's build a new Afghanistan, a centralized, you know, modern democratic state, you know, with Hamid Karzai, who's an exile and speaks English and looks great to us, but doesn't really have very deep connections in Afghanistan. And then also we'll marginalize the warlords you know, the so-called warlords and like Dostum, you know, who was, you know, certainly a guy with blood on his hands, but he was the guy who fought with Team Alpha, who captured mazar sharif who fought the Taliban. And he was the guy, you know, with mean, Team Alpha and the Green Berets who fought with him, love that guy still, because he was the, you know, he was the guy who, who stepped up and Sure, it was his own interest, but they absolutely coincided with American interests. But the U.S. government didn't want to deal with him beforehand, before nine eleven, and from December two thousand one, they wanted nothing to do with him. He's never visited this country since. He's persona non grata the State Department. You know, wants nothing to do with him. And, but you know, for all his faults and flaws, and you know the blood he has on his hands, as have, has every Afghan who's ever you know. Held sort of power in that in, in that country. He, you know, he's the leader of the Uzbeks, which is a significant minority in the north that's that's secular and pro-Western. And uh, you know, you would think that with 50 states and a federal system, we would be looking towards some kind of devolution rather than centralization. But instead, we try to push it all on Kabul and marginalize people like Dostum. I mean, Uzbeks have got nothing in common with Hamid Karzai and, and Pashtuns, you know. Now, I don't want to suggest that any of this is easy. Yeah. And of course, you know, it's all very well to say we could have had the Taliban in peace talks in 2001. I mean, Dostum wouldn't be very happy with that. The Tajiks wouldn't be very happy with that, you know. So none yeah. of this stuff was simple at any yeah. point. I don't want to be right. sitting around in Northern Virginia in 2021, saying, "Oh, if only I'd been in charge, then it would all be, right. it would all have been fine." But I do think you can look at that period of, you know, the end of 2001, think, you know, in victory, you know, we started to uh, take this in a direction which was ultimately heading towards failure and surrender and defeat and ignominy in August 2021.
0: Yeah, Carl von Clausewitz would have called it the culminating point of victory meaning that anything you do after that point uh, it negates your gains. Um, and December, to me, December 2001 was that culminating point of victory. Um, and then we let that slip through. And for you know, for, for me and I think a lot of tactical level operators of my generation, um, we could look at what we did on the ground and say, hey, if we had screwed up on the ground tactically, we were certainly been held accountable. We hold ourselves accountable. And I want to learn from those mistakes and pass them on to the next generation and the next team coming in so that they wouldn't have to learn those same mistakes in blood. Um, But the point is, we would be held accountable um, by our troops, by our leadership, uh, by ourselves. And then you see people at these strategic levels, whether in uniform and out of uniform, um, that are making huge strategic blunders that are never held accountable. So there's that delta, there's that difference between messing up at a tactical level and being yeah. held accountable and being messing up at a strategic level and not being held accountable at all ever. Um And I think yeah. that's where the journalism piece comes in. That's uh, why it's so important to, to, that we have this freedom of the press and we can have these journalists out there that are holding these senior level leaders accountable because it doesn't look like anyone else is. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting, very interesting time to be looking back on the last twenty years and writing about it. And Of course, I do it through the the medium of popular fiction, uh, which is yeah. very therapeutic uh, for me because I can look at things from different sides as I create different characters and yeah. bring a bunch of different perspectives in, which uh, which I really like to like to do. But I think that December well, two thousand one of- is really, man, that's a that's a pivotal. It was a pivotal point for in the history yeah. of all, many nations.
1: Yeah. Well, it's lots of different ways to tell stories, and uh, in a way, it's. Uh, it's finding the story and then thinking about how, and sometimes it's more than one way how you can how you can tell it. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely, and uh, yeah, first casualty, awesome. And before I let you go, I know we've been talking for a long time, and I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Um, but there was there's something near the end of the book that you talk about, and I'd I'd heard of it, and I hadn't thought of it in a long time, but uh, it's at on Koforh Black's office or somewhere in his in his office, a sign oh, and, that says yeah. the date is September twelfth, two thousand one. And I think that went up a couple of years after after 9-11. But uh, what's the significance uh, of that? And how did it play into the mindset? Or does it still uh, impact the mindset of uh, paramilitary officers uh, of the CIA in general? Yeah, Yeah. The date is September 12th, 2001.
1: You know, I should check whether that sign is still there. I'm going into the CIA next month, uh, actually in in January, uh, to talk about the book uh, in the bubble, a sort of auditorium there. Um, and I wonder if that, uh, if that sign is still there, but I'm sure the mentality is there. So, you know, Kofa Black, you know, is this great character so interesting. Africa division. Yeah. An Africa division guy, um, uh, you know, who taught, who I think worked out what would work with Bush, you know, like the, the mood of the country and mm-hmm. the mood of the president and the character of the president. And, and so he was like, you know, we're going to go in there and we're going to kill them. You know, there'll be flies walking across their eyeballs when we finished. And this was this sort of visceral yeah. language, which worked with Bush and was one of the reasons why, you know, the the pitch uh, to Bush that the CIA should lead this uh, campaign uh, worked. And, you know, so Kofa Black lives near here in Great Falls. And, um, you know, I've got to know him uh, pr- pretty well. And, you know, he's a, you know, he's an imposing figure. He's uh, He's got this kind of uh, great turn of phrase, uh, this sort of theatricality about him. And, uh, you know, often a key part of leadership and certainly in this period on 9-11 mm. is theatre, you know, is, you know, is performance. And um, and I think, you know, he was very inspired. You know, on the day he was he was intent at saying everybody should be evacuated. Uh, you know, people might die. And Kofa was like, well, we'll just have to die then. You know, I mean that was you know he had, he, he was prepared, you know, mm-hmm. he he knew that Al-Qaeda was coming, didn't know mm-hmm. the day or how, but um and so uh yes, yeah, so this sign is very much uh you know part of his kind of psyche on this. Um and subsequent CIA directors. I mean, I know Mike Hayden, another guy who lives pretty close to here. So mm-hmm. you're right, it is you're in area. the spot, yeah. Yes. Um uh, he, he used to talk about this sign in, in in speeches. And, you know, it's this came through to me sort of so vividly in researching this. And before 9-11, I talked about the Blue Sky Memo and CTC and CIA, you know, trying to get into Afghanistan and get after Al-Qaeda. And, and we know about the, you know, the opportunities to kill mm-hmm. bin Laden before 9-11 and how they were sort of passed up. And that's there's still debate within the CIA about that. But, you know, the consensus is we could have got him, but the political will uh, wasn't there. And so then immediately after 9-11, you know, on 9-12, you know, so the sign is today, today September the 12th, 2001. You could do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the gloves are off. Money's no mm-hmm. object. There's been no interest in Afghans. And now any Afghan is interesting. And, and we're going to take the gloves off. And we're gonna get in there and we're gonna take risks we're gonna kill people we're gonna you know we're gonna make decisions on the ground we're not going to be sitting around you know debating things in the deputies committee and putting it through the interagency process we're mm-hmm. gonna cut through the bureaucracy and there's you know there's a guy um Frank Archibald senior CIA guy in the, in the um in the book and in a meeting you know shortly after 9 eleven they're testing the fire alarm you know and so this fire alarm is going off and he's Former Marine gets up, rips it out of the wall, yeah. <laughs> sits down. We've all wanted to do that in meetings. Yeah. He'd probably been wanting to do it for years. Yeah. yeah. But he did it. And that was, you know, the CIA cafeteria was sort of closed at, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. They're working 24-7. So somebody gets an axe or bolt croppers and just cuts the chain and they just go into the cafeteria and help themselves. And that was the sort of the, right. the, the mentality of, of that time. And there was this, you know. There was this feeling of we failed to connect the dots. We, you know, you know, there was intelligence indicating two of these hijackers were in the country. You know, the FBI and the and the CIA wasn't communicating properly, and so we there was a sort of a, a you know a failure to stop this. And so we need to we need to remain vigilant. We can't assume that everything's okay. We can't uh, we can't be averse to risk because you know. Avoiding risk uh, means we'll get hit again. And so there's a sort of a, a, a mentality that you know they're after us, they're trying to kill us. Uh, we have to stop them, We have to get them where they are. you know we have to, we have to lean forward. That's, that was the atmosphere on September the 12th. Also, I mean, I guess slightly separate from that, but a part of the backdrop is the country was united.
0: yeah.
1: I mean, one member of Congress, Barbara Lee, representative from California voted against authorizing military force that the UN was behind us uh NATO was was behind us bush's uh popularity rating was 90% in October 2001 so the whole country it seems incredible now Is pointing in the in the in the same direction and i remember thinking at the time this is there's no way this is going to last um, but it was still kind of nice for a while yeah um and so you know there was a lot that was was great about the mentality of post 9 11. And sure, you know, there's vengeance in, involved and 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 all that. And maybe some of that doesn't mean you, you know, sometimes a cool ahead, you know, maybe should have prevailed. But, and certainly in the intelligence agencies and in the US government, that September the 12th mentality of like kind of never again is something that I, I, Still think is uh, in in the special operations and special forces communities, CIA, and and doubtless you know other government departments. You know the, you know, you know if you're of a certain age. I mean, I remember 9/11 vividly. I will never forget it. it changed my life. It Put me on a course to becoming American. You know, I became an American in 2009. And you know, of course, we now have a generation of, of people. You know, in their you know, twenties, thirties, who have no idea. Right, a nine, what? You know, know. Uh, why? You know, I saw some news reporting. I was thinking, does a know about nine eleven? Do that? They know that that's why we went in. No. Um, and so, yeah. So I think that sign, um, if it's not still there, uh, it should be, and I think it may may still be yeah. there. And certainly, I think it's etched into the into the sort of minds of of many people. Um, you know in government and we you know we haven't had an attack on the homeland for the last 20 years so you know there's many reasons to be depressed about afghanistan and everything that's happened and iraq and and uh, all the rest of it but i mean i a lot of stuff has been stopped and you know obviously we don't you know you you know you get blamed for what gets through and your successes are often unacknowledged but i think the fact we haven't had um uh, an attack on the homeland for 20 years is is part of that sort of nine twelve mentality. So yeah, I'm I'm glad you picked up on that because I think it's, you know, it's an important kind of um observation about this period. Yeah.
0: No, I'm would be curious to know if it was still there. That's the first thing I thought when I read it, I was <laughs> I was wondered if it was uh if it was still there. And uh, you know, as we as we uh wrap up, uh at the end of the book, you also talk about some foundations that uh, that help kind of more of the uh uh, the shadowy side of uh, of paramilitary operations, of intelligence operations, that sort of a thing. Um, of course, there's huge foundations for Green uh, you know, Berets and Navy Seals and, and all these other yeah. things. But uh, you know, there there are guys out there who leave families behind with kids that uh, need to go to college and all the rest of it. And You talk about a couple of those foundations. You also talk about a friend yeah. of mine who was who was killed in in uh, in 2020 uh, at the near the end of last year. Uh, you mentioned him not by name, but at the end of, yeah. the, end of the book here. But um, uh, what are some of those, those foundations that people can uh, check out? How do they get in touch with them?
1: So, there's the CIA Memorial Officers Foundation, which was set up after 9 11, uh, you know, after Mike's ban. And, you know, Mike's ban was the seventh, is the seventh, represented by the 79th star on the CIA Memorial Wall. There are now 137 at last count. Yeah. Um, and so, that foundation paid, I know, for Mike's uh, daughter, Allison, to go to college and the, and for to help uh, many other children of the fallen who've been disproportionately CIA paramilitaries, you know, understandably. Um, and then the other one uh, is Third Option Foundation, which, uh, so Scott Spellmeyer uh, from Team Alpha, who became a very senior CIA officer and was Kabul station chief and retired uh, fairly recently. Um, he's on the board. Um, and I went to one of their uh, events um, in the Freedom Tower, uh, in New York uh, a couple of months ago, which was incredible. And the, uh, the current head of the Special Activity Center, who was a guy called Brian, who was a Marine who served alongside Mike Spann, uh, he was there. A uh, guy who was head of ground branch uh, was there, and and lots of formers, guys from Team Alpha, um, and uh, you know other CIA uh, officers, um, and and they specifically focus on. Um, uh, special activities uh, center now and cia paramilitaries their their families uh the families of the of the fallen but also guys who are still in so you know if you know they're doing these back to back deployments and i don't know maybe they need uh, a vacation or you know somebody to help out with kids while the you know parents you know, go off and take take a break and so they're very much sort of yeah. focused on that because people's you know minds need to be sort of in the game you know mental health is very correctly you know and I did a, I did a documentary a few years ago about PTSD and suicide yeah. in the UK many of the guys from Dead Men Risen you know that so mental health is you know very much sort of on the agenda and uh you know looking after people, keeping keeping the fight. So Third Option Foundation uh does uh a lot of work with that and it's it's a, a fantastic organization. Um and you know it was set up because uh you know these these guys mostly guys are in the are in the shadows uh you know we've ne- we don't know their names you know we're not we're not a- allowed to um and so it was very moving to hear them talk about sort of their mission statement. Mm. uh and also, you know, on the site of the World Trade Center. Wow. You know, the place where yeah. this, this, this began, you know, and there was, you know, it was a current senior paramilitary who talked about um, you know, we're the guys, we're the people who who bore a grudge, you know, we when we still bear that grudge. And we've kept our foot, our boots on the neck of the enemy, you know, for the past 20 years, and we're not gonna let it go. And so, you know, it sent like shivers down my spying you know we're here you know talking about mike's ban on the site of uh you know the world trade center and and where this all began and it's and you know even though we're out of afghanistan for the time being anyway um you know these cia officers and and the rest of the you know intelligence and special forces special operations are still out there there's still stuff happening all over the world. We can't just declare an end to the war and just come home and forget about it because, you know, they came here before and, uh, they'll, they'll be trying to come here again. And so, yeah, I couldn't recommend those two, um, those two charities, uh, enough if if you want to do something for these people. Yeah. No, for,
0: for a lot of people, it's still December 12th, 2001. So yeah, man, thank you so much for taking the time to do this and for writing this book, uh, actually for writing all, all these books. So I hope everybody Goes out and gets all these and tracks down Bandit Country. I hope <laughs> they do a reprint of that. this at some point. Um, but yeah, definitely check out all these. And this is the latest, of course, First Casualty. Um, and for somebody, I learned so much from this book, uh, and I thought I was fairly, uh, you know, well informed about what was going on uh, during this time frame. So, uh, so thank you so much for writing it and being doing such a good job with it, uh, making it such a character driven piece. And um, I mean, it's it's going to inspire, I think, also a lot of people who. Put those phones away for a second. Uh, All these distractions, take a breath. That's why I think books are so important because there are so many distractions out there. You can put those down, you sit down, you really get to, to understand more about the nature of the conflict in which we're maybe engaged in the future based on this foundation learning from the past so important we're just losing that as a society because there's Mm -hmm. so many distractions out there so i encourage everybody to go out there get first casualty gift it to 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 people in uh, junior high school high school college uh entering the military people that are wondering want to serve their country don't know really what which direction to take um uh and journalists as well um, because you do such a a great job and such a good example of, uh, of how to do it. Right. So, um, so thank you so much for doing this thank you, and Jack. thank you for taking the time and hopefully we can meet up in person, maybe at that, uh, at that Panera bread and out there in Virginia. <laughs> That's right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, where, where, where are you these days? You said you just moved. I'm in Park
0: City, Utah. We're just moving to another house in Park City, Utah. So oh, okay. Out here okay. Well, you know,
1: we have, we have friends in common in, in Park City. So come on uh, out. I would, lo- I would love to get out there.
0: Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Come on out anytime. And, uh, yeah. I'll be here right in a way. So come on out. We'll, uh, we'll definitely link up. That'd be great.
1: All right. Thanks so much. Awesome. Joe.
0: Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. I want to talk a little bit today about the SIG Cross. And if you followed me for a while, you know that I took a SIG Cross out to Thunder Ranch's Counter Sniper Course back in November of 2020. Had an incredible time out there. If you have not been to Thunder Ranch and trained with Clint and Heidi Smith and their amazing top notch staff, put that at the top of your list. And when you go through a course like that, like their Counter Sniper Course, you really get to understand your capabilities and limitations with your chosen weapon system. So in that case, it was a camouflage version, 6.5 Creedmoor cross with SIG glass on top, and uh, we are rocking it out there. It was amazing. This SIG cross is from the SIG Hunter Games, not Hunger Games, Hunter Games that took place in June of this last year, June of 2021. So we were in three-person teams out there. I was with Bullet Valentina, UFC champion. Awesome. I got so lucky with my team. We got second place, not too shabby, and everybody had the same rifle, so we all had this exact SIG cross made for the Hunter games, and we used the BDX system as well. So The BDX system is one that you get to... uh, It's a Bluetooth that links uh, binos with your scope, and uh, it does the ranging. It's amazing. It worked flawlessly out there in Wyoming where we did the SIG Hunter game, so it was very cool. These are the binos that link right here to your scope, your range, boom, dot moves in there, and uh, it was fantastic. It was such a great, uh, great experience out there. So uh, that is a very cool system. And like I said, it worked uh, worked flawlessly out there. So that's the Sig Cross, awesome. So Sig, thank you guys so much. Uh, hope we do that again. That was that was fun. Um, yeah, I got second place. Our team got second place. So. Uh, now we have our eye on that, on that first place position. So, uh, very cool. Worked great. Uh, what else do we have going on here? So Scott, thank you so much. This is a, a blade. It's called this S I V I V I. And I was not familiar with this before, but what a classy looking blade right there. That is awesome. So thank you so much for, uh, for gifting me that last night. I sincerely appreciate it. Very, very thoughtful. So thank you. And Alpine distilling. So Alpine Distilling here in Park City, Utah, this one, private stock, straight bourbon whiskey and selected by, I'm not sure if you can see that, but it says selected by the devil's hand. Awesome. (laughs) Very cool. So thank you guys so much. Can't wait to to crack this. I might save it until I'm done with uh, the next book in the blood and celebrate by cracking this open. So appreciate that. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close Podcast, an Iron Cloud original presented by Six Hour. For more about Toby Harnden, go to tobyharnden.com. That's T-O-B-Y-H-A-R-N-D-E-N.com. You can link to his social channels from there and be sure to pick up his books, Bandit Country, Dead Men Risen, and his latest First Casualty. He does an incredible job with all these. I'm going to go try to find Bandit Country in hardcover and in trade paperback format, which is just a little bigger than the mass market paperback. But Definitely pick up these books. First Casualty, it is out there right now. He does an incredible job telling these stories. If you like what you heard, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe, as that certainly helps as well. Go to officialjackcar.com and link to my social channels from there at JackcarUSA on those social channels. And you can go to jackcarusa.com for merch. My next novel is available for pre-order right now in the blood coming in May of 2022. So get out there and pre-order that. All right. That is everything for now. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciate it. Take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep
1: fighting.